When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. May our testimonies be as deep and as strong as that of Jacob, who when confronted by one who sought to destroy his faith, declared, I could not be shaken. Hello to all of you wonderful Unshaken Saints out there. I'm Jared Halverson. This is Unshaken, and we have amazing material to study this week. Now, I know I say that practically every week, because every week we do have incredible scripture in front of us. Last week we studied the Last Supper, slash First Communion, slash Passover, slash Sacrament Meeting. And I hope it was a blessing for you. There were some things that popped into my head in the very moment last week that I hope were blessings to whoever they were intended for. Uh, I'm always amazed at the Spirit's ability to fill our mouths when we open it and give us things that we hadn't planned on teaching. And I had a few experiences, a few moments like that last week. If you didn't have a chance to get through it all, I hope you at least go back and spend time talk, learning about the washing of the feet and specifically about the towel that Jesus used. Uh, the fact that he was wearing it and what difference that makes. I hope that you spent some time pondering the Apostle's question, not only Lord is it I, but Lord who is it? Uh, and proving those contraries and seeing the balance that comes when we include both versions of that, of that moment. I hope that our conversation about the sacrament was especially meaningful for you uh, and that it changes the way that we approach the sacrament table and the bread and the water and what they represent and what they're supposed to help us remember. And more than anything, as we finished and talked about the Lord's love and the need for us to supply that love for one another in the Savior's absence, that was a particularly touching moment for me. And, and I'm grateful for it. Uh, it's interesting to me because I remember, I've, I've been in sacrament meetings before where the bishop or bishopric member who's conducting right after the sacrament portion is over and before the rest of the meeting begins with talks and songs and so on, uh, they'll sometimes say something along these lines, like, well, we've now done the most important part of sacrament meeting. I guess we could, we could call, call it a, a, a day here. We've had the sacrament. That's the most important thing. And I remember thinking at the time, that, that's, that's kind of unfair to get people's hopes up. Uh, <laughs> we're getting out early. Uh, and real, in reality, what I've realized as I've, as I've pondered that more Yes, they're correct that the sacrament is the most important portion of that meeting. But as we learned last week, the sacrament was not the only thing that took place during the Last Supper. And in fact, the more you think about it, just about everything we do in sacrament meeting has an analog, has a parallel in the Last Supper of Jesus and his apostles. We sing songs, and so did they before they headed off to Gethsemane. They prayed, and to think of what Jesus is is doing as he thanks God for the cup, uh, bitter as it was, and for the bread he's about to break. Uh, there is prayer going on in the Last Supper. The thing that we tend to do most during sacrament meeting is, is talks, uh, sermons, if, <laughs> if they're up to snuff. And what's interesting to me is in the Last Supper, there were plenty of sermons as well. Moments, teaching moments that the Savior took advantage of uh, by way of final messages to his apostles before he was taken away by this little army of Judas's. 
and brought to, before these mock trials, both Jewish and Roman, and then sent to the cross of Calvary. Uh, that's all what we see in the next couple of weeks. But today we have, well, we have another sermon. And I sometimes call this the sermon after supper. Uh, it's, if this were a, a, a talk in sacrament meeting, it would be life-changing. And I pray that our study of John 14, 15, 16, and 17 today will be life-changing. This is the last teaching that we'll get from the Savior in the book of John. We already saw the last of it in the book of of Matthew, Mark, books of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. For the synoptics, it was that all of it discourse and the signs of the times and so on. John, who doesn't spend as much time on, on that, will focus instead on this discourse, this farewell discourse is what scholars often call it. I call it the sermon after supper. Uh, but either way, this is the last teaching we'll get from Jesus. Uh, and it's to his closest 11 apostles. It's interesting to think what he would say to the multitudes uh, in parting, but even more what he would say on a more intimate level to his chosen 11. In some ways, we're intruding today. We are flies on the wall, and what a blessing to be able to be so, to be able to overhear these last few words that Jesus gives his, his closest friends, and that's what he calls them. If you'll pay close attention... This is, like I said, we're only in John today. We don't have anything from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Uh, And what John emphasizes is fascinating to me. Like we saw last week, he doesn't talk about the sacrament. His focus instead is on the washing of the feet. As we'll see next week, his focus is not on what happens in Gethsemane. It's on what happens right before Gethsemane. If you were to take the 21 chapters we have in the book of John, with all of their beautiful high Christology, Uh, What you'll see his emphasis on, I mean, five out of 21 chapters is a high percentage. And chapter 13, 14, 15, 16, 17 is all Last Supper and its immediate aftermath. It's as if John, given the chance to write the life of Jesus from retrospect decades later, as he reflects back on the life of Jesus, what are his focal points? There are some incredible miracles that we see. There are these powerful I am statements. He is trying to introduce people who think they already know about Jesus to a fuller, higher, holier view of him. But more than anything else, his focus is on the Last Supper and the things that Jesus teaches when he's there and teaches on the way from that upper room to that that low point in the Valley of Kidron in the Garden of Gethsemane that he would dedicate five chapters out of 21 to this should tell us something. It should arrest our attention. You ask John the Beloved what mattered most about the life of Christ, and he'll boil it down to a couple of hours and say, if there's anything I would spend my time remembering, it's our last moments with him. It's the last things that he taught us. In fact, we'll see this near the end of our year of study in the New Testament. When you get to the three epistles of John, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, if you have eyes to see, it will be his reminiscence on the principles he, lo- he, taught, he learned, excuse me, the principles he learned from Jesus at the Last Supper. And particularly, this is what I want you to keep your eyes focused on. Pay close attention to what Jesus says about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. This is an incredible lesson on the Godhead and its individual members. Second, pay close attention to the Spirit, as 
the member of the Godhead we haven't spent much time with yet. Uh, and as Jesus in some ways is passing the baton, the Father already passed it to the Son for this mortal ministry. The Son is now passing it to the, to the Spirit to continue his, his sanctifying, revealing, guiding work. Uh, and so we will learn some things about the Spirit today that we don't see anywhere else in the, in the New Testament. Uh, the other two are the principles or focal points are the two things that John focuses on in his epistles. And to boil them down to two words, one word is love and the other word is world. And it's the love of God that overcomes the world. It's Christ's invitation for us to come out of the world, uh, invited by, by his love. Those are the two things that you'll see John emphasize most in his epistles. The love of God and the need for us to overcome the world. And we'll see his source text today in, this, in the chapters we'll study from John. Now to get into John 14, uh, the way John 13 ended uh, is interesting. It's, it, we, we studied this at the very end of last week's lesson. A new commandment I give unto you that you love one another. See, he's already moving in the direction of that focus on love. And that's where we ended. That's not exactly where chapter 13 ends. There is one little thing that is mentioned between the end of, or at the end of 13 and before we start in 14. And that is Jesus' betrayal, or excuse me, that is Jesus' prophecy of Peter's denial. And he says it differently in the John account. Now next week we will study that prophecy and its fulfillment in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And so I'm going to save John's version of that for next week and include it with the synoptics. So we're going to skip those couple of verses at the end of, of 13. But please remember, as we're now beginning chapter 14, that this continuation of the conversation, in fact, it still happens in the upper room. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, as soon as they, well, Matthew and Mark anyway, as soon as they sing that closing hymn, then they leave and they're off to Gethsemane. In John, they're not, they're not leaving yet. There's still a few more things Jesus needs to say in that upper room before he begins his final dissension. Uh, we will see his departure from the upper room at the end of chapter 14. So what we're seeing now is still there in that sacred space uh, at some point before or after the partaking of the sacrament. Uh, so with that in mind, let's head back to the upper room and begin John chapter 14. This is a beautiful scene where you will see Jesus at some of his understanding, empathetic best. Uh, talk about self-sacrifice or self-forgetfulness here. Look at verse 1. Jesus says to his apostles, Let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. Now what amazes me about that verse is that he's trying to reassure them when in reality he's the one who needs reassurance. If there were anyone in that upper room whose heart would be troubled, it's Jesus He's the one who knows better than anyone what he's headed for. And he's the one headed in that direction. He knows that Gethsemane lies ahead. He knows what, what's on the horizon at Calvary. And we've seen already, the closer he comes to this moment, it's like seeing something off on the horizon, how small it looks, just a speck from a distance. And yet, with the passage of time, as we continue to approach it, it looms larger and larger in our eyes. And that's how Jesus is feeling about this, this time of suffering that is right in front of him. And his heart is troubled. 
Remember those verses that we saw in Luke 12 and in John 12? From Luke 12, it was, I have a baptism to be baptized with. A baptism in blood, an immersion in agony, and oh, how I am straightened till it be accomplished. It's weighing heavy on him. In John 12, it was this almost conversation with self. You start to see the schism of soul between father's side and son's side, between his divinity and his humanity, where he says, that he, he says specifically, my soul is troubled as he thinks about what lies ahead. And then he says, but what am I supposed to say? Am I supposed to say, Father, save me from this hour? Well, the mortal side of me is going to scream that three times later tonight. Uh, yes, I want the Father to, to save me from this hour. But then the Father's side of him, that divine side kicks in, stiffens his spine, and says in response to that, that mortal yearning, but for this cause came I unto this hour. You get a sense. To me, growing up, it seemed like I only saw the divine side of Jesus. And especially in Gethsemane, and there was a part of me that felt like, well, of course he can do it. He's the Son of God. Uh, as we'll see next week when we really ponder what Jesus went through in the garden, we'll see that his divinity didn't make things easier. They made things harder. But I didn't recognize that when I was young. I didn't see the mortal side of Jesus troubled by this moment, and yet I see it now. I, I understand it better than I have before. And here is the beginning of this sermon after supper, this farewell discourse. He's reassuring them. We will see this played out over and over between now and the resurrection, that despite Jesus being in a time of intense need, what does he do? He spends that time looking outward at other people with lesser trials and lighter concerns. And yet he loses himself in reassuring others. And I have a feeling that in doing so, he felt reassurance himself. If you are suffering, if you're struggling, if you're wrestling with a weight that seems unbearable, then look around. And if you have eyes to see, you'll recognize weights on everyone. Now, granted, some of them might seem a lot less heavy than yours. And yet, if you'll turn outward and lift other people's burdens, you will find your own being miraculously lifted as well. That, to me, is one of the great lessons Jesus will teach us. Here in words, later in deeds, pay close attention between now and and the resurrection, all the times Jesus lifts and helps and loves those around him, even when he is at his lowest moment in life. In this particular case, reassuring them and trying to lift their troubled hearts with that phrase, ye believe in God. So believe in me. There's something to that. In our own experiences, if we believe in God, can't we trust that all will be well? If we believe in God, can't we believe in the things that Jesus Christ has taught us? If we believe in the Father and the Son, can't we believe in the things that prophets and apostles have taught us? It keeps coming down, whether by my own voice or the voice of my servants. There's something about having our faith ultimately in God. Because if that is in place, 
everything else is going to work out. As I've often done with people that are struggling in faith crisis, and their questions tend to revolve around church history or policy, doctrine, those kinds of things. Sometimes I'll cut straight to the chase and just say, do you still believe in God? That shocks many of them. Uh, whoa, 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 atheism? Are, are we going there? I'm like, well, I am, because I wonder if you have. Uh, if, we're, if that's where the cracks go ultimately, if the cracks go all the way down to the bedrock of God himself, then we're kind of wasting our time. We're not wasting our time. We're getting ahead of ourselves if we're trying to fix our perspective on church history. No, that's rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic. If the ship is going down, we've got bigger things to worry about. So let's talk about God. And if you still believe in him, if you still have a relationship with him, because if you do, that will be the source whereby the real help will come. Uh, so often people who are attacking the church on church history issues, down deep, they don't believe in God, which means they're, they're operating in a different universe. One in which answers to prayers cannot come. Revelation does not occur. Spiritual witness means nothing to them. They, they will hardly ever admit, at least publicly or on their podcasts, that they no longer believe in God at all. But please have an eye to that if you're, if you're caught up in the kinds of things that they're throwing at you. Uh, down below their, their concerns about church history is a lost belief in God. And no wonder there are major concerns that nothing can solve because they've closed off the ultimate source of assistance. In this case, if we believe in God, what else can we trust as a result? I love that Jesus is, is going all the way back to that. You've got that faith in place. Keep it. Let it extend. Let the dominoes begin to fall in a divine direction. You believe in God, believe in me. And then he starts to tell them what he and the Father will be doing for them. This is where we really start to see the Father and the Son coming together in this discourse. Verse 2 and 3. In my Father's house are many mansions. Think celestial mansions and terrestrial mansions and celestial mansions of all shapes and kinds. The Lord says, if it were not so, if there weren't many mansions in my Father's house, I would have told you. Now I'm going to prepare a place for you. That's why I'm leaving soon. To prepare. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself. Now, it's not just an if in the JST, it's a when. There he says, and when I go, I will prepare a place for you and come again and receive you unto myself. Then this verse ends, that where I am, there ye may be also. Jesus is the ultimate pioneer. We talk about the, the LDS pioneers crossing the plains, and theirs is an incre incredible trek. If you remember section 136 of the Doctrine and Covenants, the one revelation that we see from Brigham Young that was given to the saints on the trail west. And in their pioneering, it would be a different kind of pioneering than any group that went before not or after. This is not the Oregon Trail. This is not the Donner Party. This is not the, the 49ers heading off to the gold rush. These pioneers were trying to prepare for those that would come after. It wasn't just a race to get to the goal, the finish line as quickly as possible. Beat the rest so you can stake your claim. 
No, it's slow down the process and build. Plant crops and, and build shelters that you'll never use. Plant and then leave. I'll take care of the growing in your absence. But that way, by the time those later companies follow in your footsteps, oh, they'll have food to eat and places to stay. You get a sense of Jesus' pioneering. I am going back to the Father. Because, well, safety inspection is still awaiting your mansion on high. Uh, there's still a few wings I want to throw up uh, and, and turrets I want to extend. There's some work I've got to do on the other side. And we'll see what that work is when we get to Saturday uh, of Holy Week. The other thing in, this, in these verses that I love is this sense of companionship the Lord wants to maintain with his apostles. When he says, I'm leaving, it's not just to go to God, it's to prepare a place for you. And since I'm preparing it for you, I'm then going to come again to receive you unto myself. You get that sense from the end as well. Where I am, I want you to be. To think that, that's, a, that's the whole purpose of his condescension. So there could be a con ascension. He comes down to be with us so he can bring us up to be with him. That's, that's no small feat to exalt mere mortals. Not just to prepare a place for them, but to prepare the people for that place. And there's, a, there's a lot of finish work to do on me, I know. But I get a sense that the Lord knows that too. He knows our sense of inadequacy. You ever walked into a place where you feel completely out of place? You step in, I mean, you're talking uh, imposter syndrome to the nth degree, and you walk in and, I mean, maybe you're not physically underdressed, but intellectually or socially, do you feel underdressed? Like these people are out of my league and what am I doing here? Usually we look around. That's why often we'll want to go on, on group dates or we have this group that we're coming to together with. And we just want some backup. Well, imagine stepping into a place far beyond your dreams, far above your reach, and feeling completely out of place and alone when you enter. If you've ever had an experience like that, it's, it's kind of a nightmare, especially if you're an introvert. <laughs> well, imagine the host himself, Mr. Popularity, all eyes on him, and he comes out to meet you and brings you in with his arm around you, starts introducing you to other people. Everyone wants to be around him, but since you're with him and, and you're one of his own, people can see that now. Oh, the, you see what he's done? There's something beautiful about extending oh, social connections in that kind of way and letting people know, oh, he's with me or she's, she's one of my own. And for Jesus to do that, to be to be with us, to want us to be with him. That's a beautiful, that's a beautiful thing. Now in verse four through six, notice what the Lord says next. Whither I go, ye know. He's been talking about this at least since the Mount of Transfiguration. I told you, and I've repeated it often. I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to die and rise again. Ultimately, I'm going to my Father. So let me remind you of that. Whither I go, ye know. And the way ye know. It's interesting that in some ways we know more than we realize. Here's the Lord's telling him, guys, you got this. You know this stuff. Please reflect on the lessons that you've learned. Then again, 
yeah, I know, but do I really? I think of Amulek here when he admits to Alma, I knew, but I would not know. And I wonder if these apostles just, for whatever reason, they can't wrap their heads around this. Do we really know where you're going? Or better question, do we really know how to follow? I'm not sure. That's where Thomas chimes in. Good old Thomas. We unfortunately always call him Thomas, Doubting Thomas. But remember Daring Thomas? If you're going to go, then we're going to go with you. If you're going to Jerusalem to face your death, then let's go and die with him. That's what he said to his fellow apostles. Well, he's getting closer and closer to that moment. But here, he still has that, a, a similar question. How do we go? And so he asks it. Thomas saith unto him, Lord, we know not whither thou goest. And how can we know the way? So he's pushing back against Jesus' reassurance. No, no I, you say we know. I, we don't. Have you ever had that experience where someone in a position of authority is delegating that authority to you and saying, you got this, you know how to do this. And he's like, no, I, I don't. You think about the new priest, freshly ordained, and I don't know how to bless the sacrament. It's like, oh, come on, you've been watching this since you were a deacon. I know, but I wasn't paying attention, at least not enough to be able to do it on my own. Please don't make me do this. This is your first door approach when you're being trained as a missionary. This is, these are your initial moments of raising children, and you wonder, I, I don't know how to do any of this. Oh, feelings of inadequacy well up within us, and Thomas is feeling that keenly. I don't know where you're going. And you keep talking about leaving us. Can you blame us for having troubled hearts, despite your reassurance? The way, I don't know the way. To which the Lord responds, Thomas, yes, you do, because you've spent the last three years walking in it. Do you, do you not know what you know? Better question, do you not know who you know? Because what the Lord says in verse 6, such famous words, but keeping them in context, directed towards those with troubled hearts, feeling lost and alone and wondering where they can go. The Lord says to Thomas, to his other apostles, to all of us, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father, but by me. You see the question Jesus is answering with that statement? Thomas, we don't know the way. Jesus, yes you do. Because you know me, and I am the way. For the last three years, I have been modeling what it looks like to be a true child of God. I have been embodying divinity. I am the Word made flesh. So believe the Word. Follow the flesh. Do as I'm doing. We teach the little primary kids to sing. And that's what Jesus is teaching these little children, apostolic as they might be. Do what I've done. Remember me. Think about how I would respond in particular situations. There is a book I read long ago called In His Steps. It's an old book. It was one of the most popular books at the, be at the beginning of the 20th century, if I remember the, the history correctly. It's a book where the phrase, what would Jesus do, comes from. 
And it's been so, that phrase has been so popularized. And you can get wristbands with WWJD and there's bumper stickers and you name it. But we're not talking paraphernalia. We're, we're talking principles to follow. And in that book, In His Steps, it tells the story of a, some Midwestern town where the pastor tells the congregation, and pretty much everybody goes to this same church, what would happen if we li truly lived our lives based on that question? If we were to seriously ponder the answer and its implications, and then come what may have the courage to act on it? No, seriously, what would Jesus do if he were the newspaper editor? What advertisements would he not publish? What stories would he not tell? Or what stories would he tell in what, and what ways would he tell them? The businessmen and women, how would they approach their bottom line if they really asked the question, what would Jesus do in this situation? Every school teacher, every policeman, oh, everyone in our little town, how would life change? And in the book, that whole town decides, let's do it. I remember being so inspired by this because you could see concrete changes in behavior based on the answer to that question. And the courage of, of having the courage of their convictions to act on it, regardless of the consequence. To me at the time, I think I was in college as I was reading it, what I didn't know was if the book was fiction or nonfiction. And I hoped so hard that it was nonfiction. I'm like, please, let, please say that this actually happened. Please tell me there was a town that pulled this off. And tell me where the town is so I can move there and try to join them. I found out later that it's a fictional story, which at first was disappointing until I realized, well, maybe that's the point. It's going to be up to us to turn fiction into nonfiction. And that's what Jesus has been trying to accomplish these past three years, especially among his, cho his chosen apostles. You know the way, Thomas. Peter, will you be the rock? James and John, will you be sons of thunder or just passing flashes of lightning? Will you follow me? Because if I'm the way, then please do things my way. If I'm the way, follow me. If I'm the truth, believe me. <laughs> you believe in God, then believe in me. And best of all, if I'm the life, then live that life. I have come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. So lean into that abundant life. Step into that narrow way. <laughs> narrow as it is, there's room for everyone. Believe the truth that I've taught you. And let it change you. That, that, that's the only way we're going to come home. There is no other name given under heaven. There is no other way. There is no other truth. There is no other life worth living. And for that reason, we will not come home to the Father. Those mansions on high that the Savior himself has been preparing for us will stand vacant. I don't know if weeds grow in the celestial kingdom, but picture, picture a mansion with weeds out front. 
picture at an old for sale sign, kind of hanging from, in fact, it wasn't a for sale sign. It's a for gift sign. The gift of salvation that Jesus has been offering all of us. Will we simply receive it? Will we accept it in the same spirit with which it is given? Will we follow the way and believe the truth and live the life? If we don't, then there's no way home. It's interesting because that makes that, pa that passage is one of the ultimate non-negotiables. That it's, it has to be through Jesus. Now, we live in a day that wants to explain away and negotiate practically everything. Now, it's in the name of peace, and that's good. Uh, can't we all just get along? Well, the best way to get along is to compromise. And, then, and some ways to compromise is to negotiate certain things away. Like, okay, fine, I won't hold to this. And, and I'll, I'll allow you to hold that if I can hold this, but I'll get rid of that as long as you get rid of that. And you end up lowering things down to some lowest common denominator. But what that means, what that means about everything above the lowest common denominator is we had to negotiate those things away. Sorry. As we see in, in Christianity today, there is a loss of denominationalism. Now, if that means there's less... <laughs> Uh, contention between denominations, then I'm all for it. But if that, if we're eliminating disputations, that's a good thing. By eliminating doctrine, ooh, that's a bad thing. And unfortunately, by erasing a lot of these denominational lines, a lot of that has come because, well, we're going to not worry about the things that we used to feel so passionately about. Now, some of those things are fine. Uh, some things about church structure or ecclesiology, that, fine, we can, we can compromise on those. We can negotiate. But certain doctrines are meant to be non-negotiable. Earlier on in the book of John, chapter 3, when he says to Nicodemus, you have to be born again or you cannot see the kingdom of God. You must be born of water and the Spirit. Baptism, confirmation. Without it, you're not in. And yet, ooh, a Christian baptism, what about those who never had the chance? That's not fair. So let's negotiate away the need for saving ordinances. Because otherwise, we're, just, we're sending most of God's children to hell. And some churches will specifically tell you that. Yikes. Well, is the, the softer version, it's, it's kinder, it's gentler, but is it truer? Is it true to what Jesus said in John 3? No, it isn't. He made baptism a non-negotiable. Well, what about those who are not just negotiating away Christian ordinances? What if they're negotiating away Christ? and Christianity itself, because it seems so exclusionary. Ah, we don't like that anymore. We want to be inclusive. That's a good thing. But at the expense of Jesus, to say, oh no, as long as you, I don't know, just try to be a good person, then it doesn't matter if you were a Christian or not. Some people say, well, they're Christians without knowing it. Uh, and so they're still coming unto the Father through the Son. We're still holding to John 14, 6. They just don't know that it's through Jesus. To which I always feel a little uncomfortable, like, really? They don't know? Is that really faith in Christ then? If he saves them behind their back? I don't know about that. I am so grateful for the restoration of the gospel in its fullness. Because through the restoration, we can hold to the non-negotiability of doctrines like the need for saving ordinances and Christianity itself. We can hold to John 3, we can hold to John 14, 
and we don't have to negotiate away any of those things because our exclusivity includes radical inclusivity. We can hold to the requirement of baptisms and do baptisms for the dead to make sure that every child of God that's ever lived or ever will, will have that opportunity. We can hold to the doctrine of the redemption of the dead and the preaching of the gospel to the spirits in prison. Thanks to that restored doctrine, we can hold to John 14, 6 and not be exclusionary. We can be radically inclusionary, knowing that everyone will have the chance to hear of Jesus and exercise their agency, eyes wide open, knowing the way, the truth, and the life, and deciding whether or not to follow it. You understand? It's amazing. There was even one, at one point, I, I believe it was the, the Harvard Divinity School dean at the time, had been so concerned about the exclusivity of John 14, 6, that he tried to negotiate even that away. He said, well, well, don't forget that, he's, that Jesus is speaking to Thomas here. And so maybe it's just specifically directed at him. To which I'm like, seriously? What part of no man cometh unto the Father? But my, and He doesn't say, no man named Thomas, who's been walking with me the last three years, can come unto the Father, except you live up to your, the knowledge that you have. Now, all men, that's pretty all-inclusive. We cannot explain away this requirement. We can't. It, this is a non-negotiable. In fact, it's the ultimate one. But it, thanks to the restoration, there's no reason to negotiate it away. We can hold to it and still extend that, that welcome, that invitation to everyone. It's amazing. If I can add one second witness to the non-negotiability of this. Uh, you mind if I turn to Elder Lawrence Corbridge of the Quorum of the Seventy? This was a talk he gave long ago now. It feels like yesterday, but uh, this was 2008. And in this conference talk, I'd never, I'd never met or heard from Elder Corbridge before, but this was an eyebrow singer. And, and it was, I could picture Brigham Young pulping the, uh, pounding the pulpit. Uh, because what Elder Corbridge taught was so bold. It was so... It was so powerful. And hear his words in echo of what we just saw in John 14, 6. Elder Corbridge taught, there is only one way to happiness and fulfillment. He is the way. Every other way, any other way, whatever other way is foolishness. We can either follow the Lord and be endowed with His power and have peace, light, strength, knowledge, confidence, love, and joy. Or we can go some other way, any other way, whatever other way, and go it alone, without His support, without His power, without guidance, in darkness, turmoil, doubt, grief, and despair. And I ask, which way is easier? There is only one way to happiness and fulfillment. Jesus Christ is the way. I'm still stirred by those words. And I remember hearing them when he first gave them and just being captivated by the conviction in his voice. Talk about stark differences. Talk about you're foolish or wise. Your sheep or your goats or your wheat or your tares, there's... 
two men plowing together and one is taken, the other isn't. There's two women grinding the grain and one is on the Lord's side and the other chooses some other way, any other way, whatever other way. They didn't follow Jesus. The choice really is that stark. The choice really is that simple. And the choice is ours. Will we follow the way, believe the truth, live the life? Will we strive to be like Jesus? You get a sense of what Jesus is trying to do here. This is it. This is the end. His heart is troubled as he recognized the troubled hearts of those all around him. My dear friends, my closest brethren, I'm going. And for now, at least, you cannot come. Don't worry. I'll, I'll bring thoughts of you with me. I'm going to prepare a place for you. I'll come back so that we can go into it together. In the meantime, you know the way to go. Follow my example. Remember my teachings. Be as much like me as you possibly can. And I promise I'll bring you home. From there, Jesus expands this discourse, continues his conversation about the Father, since that seems to be what he's been emphasizing so far. He says in verse 7 through 9, If ye had known me, ye should have known my Father also. And from henceforth ye know him and have seen him. Philip saith unto him, Lord, show us the Father, and it sufficeth us. And Jesus saith unto him, Have I been so long time with you? And yet hast thou not known me, Philip? He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. And how sayest thou then, Show us the Father? It's Philip's turn to feel a little sheepish. For Thomas, it was, We don't know the way. And Jesus says, Yes, you do. You know me. For Philip, it's, Show us the Father. And Jesus says, I already have. You're looking at his express image. There's never been a better example of like father, like son, than the father and the son. In one of the accounts of the first vision, Joseph Smith, when he saw them both, said, I couldn't tell the difference. They, they appeared so alike that if one hadn't turned to the other and said, this is my beloved son, oh, that's son, so that must be father. It's amazing. If you think of the perfect oneness that they share, and we'll wrestle with that more today. This is not a oneness on the ontological level. Ontology is the study of being. And so it's not one being that has a father manifestation and a son manifestation and a spirit manifestation. We'll wrestle with the doctrine of the Trinity in a moment. But here he leads into it with unity. Their separateness is a subset. <laughs> Uh, it's almost an afterthought compared to their incredible unity in every imaginable way except substance, except identity. Uh, Elder Holland has taught this powerfully in General Conference, the distinctiveness between Father, Son, and Spirit, but also the unity, the oneness between them. And especially here as he discusses the oneness of Father and Son, if you're wondering what the Father would do in any circumstance, Think about what I would do. What would Jesus do 
you could <laughs> add some other, another acronym to the bracelet. What would the Father do? The same thing. How many times did Jesus say earlier, especially in the book of John, I only do the things I've seen my Father do. I learned from Him. He's the one that taught me my first premortal lessons. And I have come to show people not only the way to the Father, but the way the Father is. If you've seen me, you've seen Him. If you want to go back and read an incredible talk, Elder Holland, another one, a different one than his talk on the Trinity, is one called The Grandeur of God. It's a glorious message. Elder Holland has a few of those, doesn't he? <laughs> but in The Grandeur of God, he talks about the Father. But he explains the Son's role in showing us the Father. In one of my favorite statements from that talk, Elder Holland says that, yes, Jesus came to earth to improve God's view of humanity. He had to clean us up to make us presentable, right? But in a far deeper, more significant way, Jesus came to do the opposite, to improve our view of God, to reveal to us what God the Father is really like. He's not some mean, angry, vengeful, distant deity. No, he's a loving Father who so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. And that Son came in the express image of his Father so we'd know what the Father is like. Oh, there's some incredible family resemblance there. I've sometimes had students ask, especially when they study Scripture, and it, it's hard to tell if it's father or son that is being talked about or that is talking. Which, is, which one is it here? Now, the simple answer is, if it's post-fall, assume it's the son. Unless it's so clear that both are, are present, like the baptism of Jesus, like the, like the vision that that Stephen has in Acts chapter 7, like the first vision in Joseph Smith, when it's clear that there's two and the Father is presenting the Son, then yes, that's the Father speaking. But other than those rare instances, post-fall, we have fallen out of the Father's presence. And Christ will act as our intermediary in every instance. So assume that it's the Son. But also, assume that the Son is revealing the Father. Divine investiture of authority is what Elder McConkie called it. Power of attorney is how we describe it in our day legally. Uh, it's the Son showing the Father and what the Father would do in any given circumstance. As I've often reassured my students, don't let it worry you. Don't, don't let your hearts be troubled over this topic. Because as Jesus said to Philip, if you've seen the Son, you've seen the Father. You don't have to worry too much about parsing out responsibilities. There's never been a better team than the Godhead. And what one would do, so would the, the others would do the same thing. So keep that in mind. Now Jesus then goes on with his conversation in verse 10 and 11. Believest thou not that I am in the Father and the Father in me? This complete oneness not of a person, not of identity, not of substance, but of purpose, of attribute. Yes, I'm in him, he's in me. The words that I speak unto you, I speak not of myself. And I've been telling you that from the very beginning. These are the Father's words. He's given them to me. I'm now passing them on to you. See the Father behind everything the Son does. He says, the Father that dwelleth in me, he doeth the works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the very works 
sake. This goes back to the idea of by their fruits ye shall know them. And what fruits have come through the ministry of Jesus? His incredible miracles, these unimaginable acts of, of glory. It's God's glory being manifest through all of them. Remember what Jesus says to the, the man born blind. Your circumstance is that the works of God may be made manifest. And they're manifest in you. They're manifest in me. This is God working through all of us. And so pay attention to those works. Believe me for the works sake. Even if you can't believe me for my words sake. Either works or words. They will point you to me. And ultimately, they will point you to the Father. Then, speaking of works, verse 12. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me. So faith is going to be required here. The works that I do shall he do also. And greater works than these shall he do, because I go unto my Father. And whatsoever ye shall ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. And then he repeats this. If ye shall ask anything in my name, I will do it. And why wouldn't he? You are becoming more and more like me. You can be trusted with my power. Wow, what do you think this three-year apprenticeship has been for? You get a sense that Jesus is passing the baton? We see this beautifully in church history. As the last few months of Joseph Smith's life, he is so intent on passing every key, every authority, every power, every principle onto the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. He's been telling them, my time is almost at hand. He's a man living on borrowed time in some ways and wants to make sure that he's passed the baton so that the race can continue, if, even if he's no longer the runner. Jesus is doing the same thing here. You believe in me, believe that I believe in you. And the works you've seen me do, you can continue doing them. I give you that authority. In fact, I give you that responsibility. I have been here to glorify God letting my light so shine before men that they might see my good works and glorify my Father which is in heaven. Well, I'm the way. Follow it. I'm the life. Live it. Do the same kinds of things. And in fact, do even greater things. This is one of many examples that we see from Jesus of his incredible humility. Rather than, I'm the light of the world, so can you keep the spotlight on me? No, if I'm the light, I don't need spotlights. They're, they're, they would dim things, believe me. They're, nothing can compare. But shine the spotlight on these apostles of mine. Let's delegate some authority. Let's give them some responsibility. Oh, you guys, go distribute the loaves and the fishes. At least you're involved until you get up to speed where you can multiply them yourself. Uh, Peter, James, John, you were with me when you saw me raise the daughter of Jairus from the dead. Peter, remember that when you meet Tabitha. You'll do the same. To understand, in the book of Acts, which we'll get to in a couple of weeks, the kinds of miracles that the apostles performed during their ministries, they learned it all from watching Jesus. And I love that he's promising them not only to do his works, but to do even greater works than he. When you think of teaching, for example, he, Jesus doesn't do a whole lot of theologizing. It's like, oh, I'll leave that to Paul. 
Paul's a genius, uh, and I'll let him work out the subtle intricacies of, of my doctrine. I'm just going to tell some stories, <laughs> preach some parables, I'll do some good deeds, and then perform something, some act, a certain act so great, no one can do that. And that's the atonement, and the crucifixion, and the resurrection. That I'll take care of. Other than that, oh, mighty works, yes, for you. There's actually an example of this that I love from 3 Nephi. When Jesus has been among the, the gathered multitudes there in the land bountiful, he's already blessed the children, but he's about to take things up a notch when the, as far as these little children are concerned. The blessing of the children was in 3 Nephi 17. This is in 3 Nephi 26. Almost a, one of the last things he does as he finishes his, his ministry among the Nephites. 3 Nephi 26, 14, it came to pass that he, Jesus, did teach and minister unto the children of the multitude of whom hath been spoken. It's like, okay, I've, been in, I've spent enough time in gospel doctrine. Can I go to primary, please? I love it there. Now he goes and ministers to the children. And notice what he does. He did loose their tongues, and they did speak unto their fathers great and marvelous things. And how great? even greater than he had revealed unto the people. He loosed their tongues that they could utter. Talk about humility. I'll let the primary program outshine my own general conference talk. <laughs> loose the tongues of the children. Well, who better to have their tongues loosed since they're the ones that will be leading out eventually, long after I'm gone. Do you see the importance of delegating to others? Do you see why the Lord lets us participate in building his kingdom? We've got some growing up in God to do, and he's trying to get us up to speed. In verse 15, then, this incredibly famous statement, but one that we almost wish weren't so famous. Uh, in much of Christianity today, we want to kind of sweep this verse under the rug. Because in it, verse 15, Jesus says, If ye love me, keep my commandments. Uh, can't we just stick with the love in the first half and not worry about the obedience commanded us in the second half? Uh, because the first half can be faith alone. And sola gracia, sola fides, only grace, only faith. And it's not even about us loving Jesus. It's about Jesus loving us. And he loves us enough to save us come what may, right? Doesn't he? Doesn't he love us enough to never say no because surely if it's love, then it has no limits, right? If it's love, it has no law. Love is just allowance, isn't it? I mean, at least the way the world defines it these days. If you love someone, then let it do anything it wants, including indulging in self-destructive behaviors. That's not the kind of love the Lord has for us. His love is perfect. His love is divine, and His perfect love does come with, with great expectations. You see, in some ways, if we don't do the second half, then we are limiting just how much Jesus can do of the first half, of Him loving us. Again, our disobedience doesn't affect His love, but it does affect His ability to act out of love in blessing us, in forgiving us, in saving us, in exalting us. So much of that is dependent upon our 
obedience. If no man can come unto the Father but by Christ, how do we come unto Christ? By following in his way. It's his way, not ours. He didn't say, oh, Thomas, Philip, you are the way. And as long as you go your way, I love you enough to, to kind of pick you up at the end of your journey, wherever that led, and just kind of teleport you back to the straight and narrow path. No, it was straight and narrow from the start. And obeying the commandments are what keep you within the confines of covenant. That, that's why I've given. In fact, I have given you commandments as a manifestation of my love. It's the example I've set. It's the, it's the cheat codes of life. It's the, it's the way, the truth, and the life. It's the best possible way to live. And I've lived it myself as an act of love. If I love you enough to give you commandments, do you love me enough to keep them? Because if you love me, and therefore want to be with me and like me, then there's no other way but by obeying those commandments that I've given you. That is do as I'm doing. Follow, follow me. <laughs> that is living the life and walking the way. This is a tough one. In a day that has redefined love to have no expectations, a love that can never say no, a love that can never ask for obedience. No, Jesus, who is love personified, is also obedience embodied. And he's asking us to embody that obedience as well. If you love me, if you really love me, I'm giving you a way to show that. I mean, the old saying of what do you give the guy that, get, that has everything? Or how can I show my love to someone that, what, what's their love language? It's interesting here, the Lord seems to suggest that one of his love languages is law. One of his love languages is obedience. I mean, that's quality time, right? Spend the time with me, living as I live. There's words of affirmation, right? I will do what you've asked me to do. Gifts, yeah, what do we give the Lord? We give him our heart, our will, our agency. Wealth, known to, to almost all of us, I'm sure, <clears throat> is the statement from Elder Maxwell, where he described the only gift that is truly ours to give, because it's the only gift that God cannot take, if he so chooses, is our agency. It's our will. And to say to him, take it. Here's my heart, Lord. Take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Here's my agency. Here's my will. I only want to do it your way. I only want to live your life. I love you, and therefore I will keep your commandments. What Elder Maxwell didn't say when he described that is the fact that even when we offer him our will, the Lord doesn't take it. At least not once and for all. That would be too easy on our part. Here's my agency. Take it. Keep it. And just kind of control me like remote control. No, that's... That's accepting the Lord's plan to begin with and then ending off by switching it, bait and switch, for Satan's plan. I don't want my agency because I don't trust myself with it. You've seen how I've abused it. Yeah, I have. But that's why I keep working with you and working on you and working in you. Because I want you to have the self-confidence to trust yourself with your own agency. So that you can freely choose to follow me.
but you'll follow me every time. That, that's, that's well-trained. That's well-disciplined. And that's what discipleship is all about. You see, if I were to take, you, take from you your agency today, in today's gift, then you'd have no gift to offer me tomorrow. So I will take the, the will for the deed. It's the thought that counts, after all. And since you are offering me your will today, thank you. Thank you for loving me enough to keep my commandments. Hold on to your agency, though. And let's have another gift-giving opportunity tomorrow. Make sense? Well, speaking of gift-giving, turn to verse 16. Where the Lord says, I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter. Now, another way to define comforter from the Greek is advocate. Someone that's going to be on your side. Because that idea of being on your side is what the literal Greek word means. Paraclete has become a, an English word of sorts, but it comes from that original Greek word for advocate, for comforter. I'm, I'm grateful that the King James translators soften things because advocate can sometimes seem a little cold and calculating as far as a courtroom scene is concerned. Uh, we often think of Jesus more as our advocate with the Father. That's, how he, that's the title he claims for himself in Doctrine and Covenants 45. But we, need, we have all kinds of advocates and we'll need them, believe me. Uh, so the Spirit will be our advocate as well. But the way the King James translators gave it to us, this helper on our side, this helpmeet, we could even use that term, that this bosom companion, side by side, arms around, helping us through. Oh, that's more than an advocate. That does seem like a, a counselor and one that is a great comfort to us. So this comforter, Notice how the Lord puts it, I will pray the Father, he will give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever. You see, I am leaving soon, but I will send you another comforter that never has to leave, unless you force him to. He will abide with you, he'll abide forever, and he will be the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him, but ye know him. For he dwelleth with you and shall be in you. And then this beautiful promise, I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. And that is an, uh, a hint about what he's going to come back to in a moment. Because there's not just one comforter. There are two. Not just one advocate. There are two. And this is where the Spirit and the Son work in tandem to bring us back to the Father. This passage, there's so much in this farewell discourse, so much in this sermon after supper that is worth pondering deeply. And here, as we think about the Holy Ghost, this other comforter, the spirit of truth, think about all that the Lord has taught in this, this initial introduction. He's going to talk a lot more about the spirit moving forward. But here, what do we learn already? This is a spirit that is a spirit of truth, truth that he will weave into our own souls I am the way, the truth, and the life. Well, here is another truth. It's the same truth, okay? Confirming the same realities. But this is one that doesn't have to leave because this is one that can dwell in you. Remember the end of section 130 of the Doctrine and Covenants where Joseph Smith clarifies that, yes, father and son are corporeal. They're bodily, physical resurrection. But the spirit is not like them in that way. 
The spirit does not have a body of flesh and, and bone. It's a personage of spirit so that the spirit can dwell within us. And so to understand that reality, another comforter that can abide with us forever, that's incredible. Constant companionship is the ideal. But notice what he, what he says in the middle there. The world can't receive it. And he's going to talk more and more about the world and what it, cannot, what, it, what it can and cannot do. But why can't the world receive the Spirit? Notice what he said. Because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him. This is where epistemology comes in. Epistemology is the study of knowledge. How do we know what we say we know? And sadly, since the Enlightenment era, the world has limited its epistemology until it is stiflingly narrow. You thought the Lord had a narrow way. Well, the world's way of knowing things is so narrow, it's almost a straitjacket. It is, it's empirical. It must be scientifically provable. If you can't see it or weigh it or measure it in some way, well, how do you measure infinity? There's no oh, microscope that can see small enough to discern spirit. That's finer stuff. And there's no telescope that can see far enough to detect the, the ends of our existence. Oh, God is infinite. The, the atonement is infinite and eternal. And there's no mortal measurements that can encompass all of that. We have to be able to be willing to break beyond the world's narrow epistemological model and say there are truths that I cannot see. Even science has to admit some things you can't see either, at least not with the human eye. Uh, we've got a pretty narrow ability to discern things. We can see some red, from red to violet, but what about infrared and ultraviolet? You're going to need different instruments to detect those, that, that part of the spectrum. And for us to discern spiritual things, it will have to be done spiritually. If we refuse that, because I can't see it and I can't know it along those lines, then, oh, so sorry. There's things that you'll never see then and things that you'll never know. As Elder Packer used to say, if the only things you know are because of things that you can see or hear or touch, then sadly, you don't know much. And to see the things that the Lord will show us, to feel the things, to taste, oh, those are, that's a sense that the Lord often speaks about. Alma 32, right? To, to taste this light to partake of the fruit of the tree of life from Lehi's dream, for example, 1 Nephi 8. So many examples where that's the, the sense that we use. Well, the beauty of tasting things is it, as an analogy, you have to experience it. Because I can't describe taste. I might be able to describe things I see or hear, but tasting, that's almost impossible if you haven't experienced it for yourself. Well, the Lord wants us to experience it. And we'll experience it through the Spirit. And the beauty of the Spirit, one last thing to say here, is you have to be worthy of His companionship. 
imagine, see this to me is, speaking of epistemology and how do we know and what sense will we use, the power of the spiritual sense is that it's so sensitive, it, sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. And, and that lets us know our own role in things. So many scientific ins measuring instruments are, are so separate from the individual scientist using them that they, they always work, or they always don't, <laughs> depending on what they're trying to measure. It's independent of the user. So user error is, is not what we're worried about here. Well, sometimes that's an issue in science too. But think about that in terms of the liahona. In the Book of Mormon, the liahona was an amazing instrument, right? It guided, it directed. In some ways, it was a spirit of truth that pointed them in the true way through the wilderness. But what was amazing about it is that sometimes it didn't work because sometimes its user was guilty of user error, or in this case, user unworthiness. Can you imagine if scientific instruments only worked based on the worthiness of their operator? And worthiness meaning, why are you doing this? Is this for a noble purpose? Are you selfless in your approach to science? Are you trying to achieve a greater good? If so, then your telescope will work, your microscope will function, your, your, your particle accelerator will do all that you designed it to do. But if you are using science in such a way that it will hurt and harm more than help, then it's not going to work. I won't let it. Can you imagine that? Imagine if every scientific instrument functioned along the lines of the liahona. To make it even more personal for us non-scientists, what about your senses? Can you imagine if they only worked if you were using them for the kinds of purposes God would want you to? Imagine if your eyes stopped seeing if you were trying to look at things you shouldn't. Imagine if your ears suddenly went deaf if you were trying to listen in on conversations to, to a negative end. Can you imagine that? That would, that would be wild. In some ways, it would wake us up and let us know if we were using them for their proper purposes or not. Where it's like, well, well why did I just go blind? Oh, why, why, okay, now I have to, Lord, is it I? <laughs> and I have to purify my motives, and why am I trying to use this instrument? Is it to live the first and second great commandment? Is it to love God and bless neighbor? I guess it wasn't. Then how do I purify my motives? To me, and again, this goes back to people who I'm working with or people that are, that are knee-deep or, or in over their heads in, in anti-Mormonism, especially when it's disseminated by ex-Latter-day Saints. Number one, do they even believe in God anymore? If not, that's a different premise that they're work operating from. Number two, do they still believe that there's any kind of spiritual means of acquiring truth? Because again, if that's an, a, a no, then that's kind of a non-starter, at least for now. Then how am I supposed to answer your questions if you won't even allow for that possibility? What's their epistemological model otherwise? 
See, to me, what's interesting is you don't have to be living a certain way to fall prey to anti-Mormonism. You don't have to be living a certain way to, to fall for falsehood, to, to start accepting counterfeit currency. Then again, to find truth, you've got to be living a certain way. Or your sense doesn't work. Your eyes can't see. Your ears can't hear. No wonder Jesus so often said, those that have eyes to see, let them see. Those that have ears to hear, let them hear. If you've got a heart to feel, then feel. Open yourself to the Spirit. It's a fascinating epistemology. And in some ways, what I love about it is... It doesn't only let us know about some outward object. Is it true or not? It tells me about my inner attributes. Am I true or not? Am I living my life in such a way that I am in tune with truth? Living in such a way that this comforter can be a constant companion. There's something powerful here. And it will become more and more important. It already is essential, but it will become even more so to live worthy of that comforting companion so that we can discern truth from error. To think about, speaking of counterfeits and falsehood, I just stumbled across a YouTube channel that is President Russell M. Russell M. Nelson in artificial intelligence. And they're trying to create falsehood. They're trying to create angels of darkness disguised as an angel of light. And what can we get President Nelson to say in hopes that people will fall for it, hook, line, and sinker? The technology isn't quite there yet, but it seems that it's only a matter of time. And how well will we be able to discern? As President Nelson has said, we will not survive spiritually if we don't have the Holy Ghost with us. Spiritual survival, it's gotten to that level. And so this other comforter that the world can't receive because it's outside its parameters, nope, I can't see it, I, won't, I can't know it, then forget it. I won't accept this. Okay, then get ready to fall prey to a world of falsehoods. Whereas those that are willing to show their love to God by keeping His commandments and live worthy of the constant companionship of the Holy Ghost, they will be able to discern because this spirit is the spirit of truth. And truth will come shining through. Now he's going to talk more about this spirit because without the Savior physically present among them, we're going to need some other kind of counselor and comforter some other paraclete, some other advocate, someone else alongside us since Jesus is no longer physically here. We move in that direction starting in verse 19. The Lord says, yet a little while, which is such a hard phrase to swallow. It's almost over, my dear friends. Just a little while longer. And what's going to happen? The world seeth me no more. But ye see me. You do. You know me. You understand what I've been trying to accomplish this, these past three years. Ye see me. So whose side do you want to be on? The side that's, that has eyes to see or the side that is willfully blind? The side with the ears to hear or the side that's willfully deaf? 
The side with the Spirit or the side with much narrower instruments? Do you want to be on the world's side or the Lord's side? The choice is yours. The Lord says, because I live, ye shall live also. At that day ye shall know that I am in my Father, and ye in me, and I in you. Ah, he that hath my commandments, and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me. And he that loveth me shall be loved at my Father, and I will love him, and will manifest myself to him. You see how all these phrases, these scriptures, these passages are being woven together? Love, obedience, Father, Son, Disciple, master, this oneness, this unity, not just beside each other, but in each other. That's amazing. Now, how do I, how can I be in him and him in me and in one another? How does this make sense? Well, we'll see an example of it when we get to chapter 17 at the end of this week's lesson. It's something that is so far beyond this, it will take one of the Lord's own prayers to enable this to happen. Even the Savior will have to pray to the Father that, to make these things possible. But here is what, he's, is what he's getting at from the start of this farewell discourse. We have to achieve this kind of unity, and it will be unity in love. It will be unity in obedience, a unity of will. We're on the same team here, and we are therefore functioning truly as one. That's how he has done things with the Father. I in the Father, the Father in me, a perfect oneness. I do what he does. I teach what he's taught. In every way, I try to show you him whenever you see me. Now at that point, another apostle chimes in. I love the, oh, it's like popcorn popping. Jesus is teaching this. And, and then Philip's like, well, what about this? And then Jesus is teaching Thomas. Well, what about this? Well, now it's Judas and not Iscariot. He's gone. Okay. He's not here for this incredible lesson. So in verse 22, Judas saith unto him, not Iscariot. John wants to make that crystal clear. Lord, how is it that thou wilt manifest thyself unto us and not unto the world? Judas, we we don't know much about this particular Judas, this other Judas. But what a great question. How how are you going to do that? Because if you're going to manifest yourself unto us, wouldn't the rest of the world know? I mean, if it's visible to one, isn't it visible to everyone? If it's audible to one, can't everyone else hear it? That's the, no, that's the beauty of the Leahona. It worked in Lehi's hands. It worked in Nephi's hands. It didn't work in Laman's or Lemuel's. Haven't you ever been to a, oh, a general conference or a church meeting or a fireside where you had a life-changing experience and the person you were sitting next to did not? Or even worse, what if it was reversed? You're walking out and the person you were with is like, that was amazing. And you just kind of smile and nod like, oh, yeah, that was. But inside you're going, were we, were we at the same meeting? Well, evidently not. Remember what Alma taught, soft hearts get the greater portion of the word. Hardened hearts get the lesser portion of the word. How's that for epistemology functioning at two different levels? And which level are you on? Here, Judas is wondering, isn't there just one level? And if we see you, the world will see you? And if the world can't see you, then how can we? Oh, let's, let's distinguish, let's discern There's going to be a difference here. And so Jesus explains it. Verse 23, Jesus answered and said unto him, 
if a man love me, see how many times Jesus has, has mentioned that word? He'll keep mentioning it. If he loves me, he will keep my words. There, we're back to verse 15 again, right? If you love me, keep my commandments. Keep my words. And my Father will love him. Now, wait a minute. I thought the Father already loved everyone. Well, he does. But the, his love, oh, if it includes blessings, then yes, those blessings will be reserved to those who aren't just loved by God, but who love God in return and manifest that love, love through their obedience. So here's how I'm answering your question. If you love me, if you keep my words, if my Father loves you as a result, then we will come unto him and make our abode with him. Now this is not just a coming, this is an abiding. Abiding will make our abode with him. This is living in the same heart. This is living under the same roof. This is abiding together. But if it's under the same roof, then I guess it's kind of behind closed doors. And this is more personal than global. This is more intimate than, than infinite. Yes, the Father is infinite and His love is infinite, but to those who truly love Him, and obey him. That's more select company. And that's the kind of company that the Father and Son really want to keep. And so to personally come, to personally abide, this is incredible. And it's not just symbolic. It's literal. Joseph Smith taught this. This is section 130 of the Doctrine and Covenants, verse 3. And he specifically points to John chapter 14, verse 23, which we just read. This verse explains it. He says, the appearing of the Father and the Son in that verse is a personal appearance. And the idea that the Father and the Son dwell in a man's heart, ah, it's an old sectarian notion and it's false. <laughs> because, oh, it's easy to explain things away and figuralize or spiritualize everything. And Oh yeah, the resurrection, oh it never really happened. It's just the Spirit of Christ went on because the apostles kept the movement alive. Oh, and the second coming, no, 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 that, that'll never literally happen. You don't have to mow the lawn at Adam and Diamond. No, we're just going to achieve social justice and peace on earth. And that's the Spirit of Christ returning to earth. Oh, and the Father and the Son coming and abiding with you, as was taught in John 14. Oh, no, 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 no. That's just... There, you have a feeling in your heart. Feels like the Father. A son-like sentiment within. Oh no, it's the Spirit that works within and dwells within. The Father and Son are physical, embodied, corporeal. This is literal. This is personal. This is the infinite willing to become the intimate with you. It's incredible. And Joseph, he knew it well because he'd had the experience on more than one occasion. No wonder he taught this. And this in some ways would be a more full version of what we saw there in section 130 of the Doctrine and Covenants. Joseph Smith taught, after a person has faith in Christ, repents of his sins, and is baptized for the remission of his sins, and receives the Holy Ghost by the laying on of hands. So he, we just flew through the fourth article of faith right there. Is that where we're done? No. What do we do in step five, endure to the end? Well, after we've done all that, 
and received the Holy Ghost. Now we're picking up Joseph's quote from here, which is the first comforter. That's the, the paraclete. That's this initial advocate. That's the comforter the Lord was describing in John 14. Okay. After you've received that first comforter, then let him continue to humble himself before the Lord hungering and thirsting after righteousness, living by every word of God. So all the things that got you to this point, continue them. In fact, intensify them. Uh, Nephi talks about this in 2 Nephi 31. Have you gotten to this point and you've checked the box on the first four principles and ordinances? Or do you think you're done? No, you're ju that's just the beginning. Now it's time to feast upon the word. Now it's time to grow up in God. And as Joseph describes it, what is this time for now? If you've done all of these things, then the Lord will soon say unto him, Son or daughter, thou shalt be exalted. There's the promise. There's the calling and election made sure. The way Joseph describes it, when the Lord has thoroughly proved him and finds that the man or woman is determined to serve him at all hazards, then the man or woman will find his or her calling and election made sure. Then it will be his or her privilege to receive the other comforter, which the Lord hath promised the saints, as is recorded in the testimony of St. John in the 14th chapter, from the 12th to the 27th verses. So Joseph is expanding this. It's not just verse 23 that, that we were talking about. It's this whole passage, this whole center section of John 14. It's about calling an election. He says, now what is this other comforter? If the Spirit is the first comforter, what's the other one, the other advocate, the other paraclete? Joseph answers, it is no more nor less than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And this is the sum and substance of the whole matter. That when any man obtains this last comforter, he will have the personage of Jesus Christ to attend him or appear unto him from time to time, and even he will manifest the Father unto him, and they will take up their abode with him. And the visions of the heavens will be opened unto him, and the Lord will teach him face to face. And he may have a perfect knowledge of the mysteries of the kingdom of God. Now that is doctrine about as deep as you can get. I've heard it said when it comes to calling an election made sure that those who know don't talk and those who talk don't know. Now, I'm not going to talk, be not because I know, but because I don't know. <laughs> and because I want to be, oh, careful and honor a topic that deserves a degree of sacred silence. If this is something meant like the, the Liahona for select hands, then I will let the Lord teach that directly. Joseph had those experiences, and he's letting other people know, the saints of his day and ours, that others can have it as well. But it's something that you'll have to humble your, yourself for, something you'll have to hunger and thirst after, something you'll have to live worthy of. Talk about a narrow epistemology there. Okay, this... This particular liahona is as finely tuned as imaginable. You think about Geiger counters that can detect radiation, even in small amounts. I joked about this when we taught Section 121 of the Doctrine and Covenants. 
that my oldest son was my Geiger counter for unrighteous dominion. He could detect it in the slightest amount, and he'd throw it back in my face. <laughs> I've still got some work to do, and he's helping me, out, helping me with it. But to see this kind of sensitivity, a Geiger counter that will detect any degree of unrighteousness, lack of humility. We talked about this briefly when we were talking about signs of the times and beware of those that want to take you out into the desert or the secret chambers and say, oh, it's a select few or just this, this little group of ascetics and Gnostics. And you get those fringe groups in the church that don't believe too little, but end up believing too much and end up becoming overzealous and pushing themselves towards, towards these kinds of things. And some claiming that, oh, yes, the brethren are holding us back and, and we, we've got access to higher levels of, of knowledge. I think they forgot one phrase from Joseph Smith's statement. Let him continue to humble himself before God. Ah, okay. So this is not some kind of oppositionality. This is not some act of pride. And we're going to leave the rest of the church in the dust because we're faster runners than they are. And they're just holding us back. I'll be careful. There's some deception of the, of the very elect going on in those circles. Because these are people that <laughs> will not fall prey to their weaknesses like most of us do. Instead, they're falling prey to their strengths. Satan's pretty crafty when it comes to that. So I, I, I'm hoping that with the Spirit's help, you and I can achieve the proper balance of humbling ourselves and holding out hope and continuing to strive and to obey and to grow up in God, to desire to have the Father and the Son and the Spirit as companions, as people we're, with, we're worthy to abide with so that they are willing to abide with us. But not to get so overzealous that we end up running faster than we have strength or outrunning the body of saints we're supposed to be running with or outpacing the prophets in our own mind. I want us to be aware of the realities behind John 14. But I also want us to be aware of the dangers of, of getting out of balance here. There's some contraries that need to be proven. And I pray the Spirit will help us find the Goldilocks zone here. Now from there, what does the Lord say next? Verse 24, He that loveth me not, keepeth not my sayings. Here's the negative version of what we saw several times already. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. You'll keep my words. If you don't love me, then you won't. You won't keep my sayings. And the word which ye hear, realize, it's not mine, but the Father's which sent me. Here's that, again that likeness of Father to Son, not just in physical resemblance, but in spiritual truth. My words are the Father's words. Rejecting mine is rejecting His. He says, These things have I spoken unto you, being yet present with you. And yet, as we've already seen, He's not going to be present much longer. So what does the Lord say? The Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance, whatsoever I have said unto you. Now that's got to be comforting, speaking of the Comforter. You mean I don't have to remember all of this 
because <laughs> I've been drinking from the fire hose these past three years. You're right. <laughs> I've got a lot to do and I've got a little time to do it, especially this last farewell discourse. Yes, there's a lot here, but the Holy Ghost will come and bring it all back whenever you need it. Remember promises he's made already. Settle it in your heart. You don't have to premeditate. You don't have to know exactly what you're going to say in every moment. Because in the moment it will come. The Spirit will bring it back. I laugh with my students sometimes when they're about to have a final exam. <laughs> and I'll quote this verse to them and say, well, pray for that. That the Holy Ghost will bring all things to your remembrance. But remember, if it's a remembrance, then you better have membered it to begin with. You better put something in your mind. Have we feasted upon the words of Christ? Have we treasured up continually the words of life so that the Spirit has something to draw upon in our moment of need? It might be way in the back somewhere, and, and we've, we don't have a very good card catalog. Uh, recognizing where it is and accessing it again can be difficult. Well, trust the Holy Ghost. And as we're continually adding truth, feasting upon it every chance that we get, I have a testimony from personal experience that the Holy Ghost can bring to remembrance the very thing that someone needs in the moment that they need it. And the Spirit dusts it off as He brings it back from those back corners and says, here, remember this? You've studied it before. I would also even expand it beyond that, not just the things that we've learned from the Lord in this life, but the things we learned from Him and alongside Him in premortality. Haven't you had those experiences? Call them spiritual deja vu if you want, where you learn something, but it feels more like a memory than a new lesson. This often happens in the mission field when you meet golden investigators and you teach them truth that resonates. And they remember things that they had been taught before they pass through the veil. There's something beautiful about that here. And so to think of what the Lord is promising them. I'm leaving, but the Spirit is coming. If I am just like the Father, the Spirit is just like me. And what I've taught, I learned from the Father. What the Spirit teaches are things that I've taught you before. Again, this oneness, this unity in the Godhead, this perfect team. But will you be worthy and willing to receive them. That's the hope here. The Lord next says something, oh, so beautiful. Remember at the beginning of this chapter? Let not your hearts be troubled. Let me give you some reassurance. Middle of the chapter, let's talk about a comforter that's going to help you through this. And here now at the end of this chapter, what's he saying in verse 27? Back, full circle, more reassurance. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you, not as the world giveth, give I unto you. It's not going to be that kind of worldly reassurance. <laughs> In some ways, that's a contradiction of terms. The world cannot give you peace, but I can. As a result, he then repeats what he said at the beginning. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. I know what I'm in for, and I know what you're in for. And yes, it is troubling. No wonder you need my peace. But let it be my kind of peace. Remember we saw this in the Olivet Discourse? Whenever Jesus taught the signs of the times, his audience got troubled. Happened in the, among the ancient apostles. Happened among the first apostles of the Restoration. 
And what did he say? Don't let it trouble you. Know that the positive promises are being fulfilled too. Here also, don't let it trouble you. Hold on to my peace. Because my peace, talk about, it's not just lessons on two levels, it's peace on different levels as well. And the world's peace depends on outward circumstances. The Lord's peace does not. The Lord's peace is what allowed him to sleep in the midst of a storm at sea. It's his peace that, yes, can say to the outward elements, peace be still. But more importantly, he can say to the inner feelings, peace be still inside too. I can calm the storm, but more importantly, I can calm the sailor. If you'll come unto me. There's actually a beautiful story that revolves around this passage. Years ago during the Vietnam War, which was such a controversial conflict. Uh, and are you in favor of it or are you against it? It was really the first time in American history that there was a, a huge difference between public opinion on these kinds of things. And at one point, a reporter asked pointedly to President Harold B. Lee, president of the church at the time, what's your church's stance on Vietnam? Well, remember all those stories we've seen of scribes and Pharisees trying to trap Jesus? Should we have to pay taxes? Now, talk about marriage in heaven and the law of lever at marriage. And we're just going to try to make you an offender for a word, no matter which word comes out of your mouth. And that's what this reporter was trying to do with Harold B. Lee. Because it was a darned if you do, darned if you don't kind of dichotomy. If he said, oh, we support the war because we're, you know, as an American citizen, we support our government and the government has decided to, to continue this conflict. Well, then picture a reporter going, oh, a church that is anti-peace? Pro-war? That's odd. Maybe you guys really aren't Christians because you don't follow the Prince of Peace. Oh, okay, then I guess he should have said the other thing. Our church is against war. But then what can a reporter say? Oh, so you're anti-American. Yeah, that sounds like you Mormons uh, that fled the United States trying to create some kind of theocracy in the mountains. Yeah, yeah, okay, anti-American. Uh, are you anti-Christian or anti-American? Are you pro-war? Anti-peace? Well, President Lee was caught between a rock and a hard place. But, like the Lord he served, he wasn't caught at all. Instead, he quoted John 14. And he said, as a church, we are for peace. But, we understand there are di different types of peace. And the peace that the Lord offered, as he himself said, is not the peace of the world. We will continue seeking and trying to spread the Lord's peace, especially in the midst of all the conflicts that are raging around us. Pretty good answer there, <laughs> President Lee. Perfect answer, I would say. Well, the Lord then said in verse 28 and 29, Ye have heard how I said unto you, I go away and come again unto you. Okay, that's what I said at the beginning of this chapter. I'm leaving, preparing your mansion. I'll come back to give you the keys. Okay, I'll be your, your real estate agent. I'll bring you in and show you around. Okay, but then he says, if ye loved me, ye would rejoice because I said I go unto the Father. For my Father is greater than I. Now think about this. It's not just if you love me, you keep my commandments in my absence. No, it's if you love me, you'd rejoice that I'm being absent for a time. 
Because where am I going? I'm going back to my father. I've missed him. He's greater than I am. Can you joy for me, even as you sorrow for yourselves? Think about this whenever we lose a loved one. Of course there is sorrowing here on earth. But in some ways that's sorrowing out of self. I miss that person. And of course we do. We should. But if we pondered them and where they happen to be and what their feelings are, can we rejoice for them out of our love for them, knowing they're at a better place? That to me is a good reminder whenever our tears of separation begin to flow. The Lord then says, Now I have told you before it come to pass, that when it is come to pass, ye might believe. I've told you before. Is that ringing bells? Just like with Judas's betrayal, just like his conversation about the signs of the times, the Lord is prophesying and calling attention to the fact that he's prophesying. You're going to miss me. The crucifixion will... It's not the, just the earth that will be shaking there. You'll be shaking too. You'll be wondering, a Messiah who was murdered? Martyred? A Christ who's been killed? This is not what I expected. Well, it's what I, I told you in advance would come. So don't let Judas's betrayal shake you. Don't let the signs of the times and the deception of even um, those among the elect, don't let that shake you. Don't let my crucifixion shake you. Because I saw it all coming. And I told you all of this before. Let this confirm your faith. He then closes this chapter in verse 30 and 31. Hereafter, I will not talk much with you. This is his farewell discourse, after all. From here on out, you're going to see deeds. Not many words. For the prince of this world cometh. Now the JST says, For the prince of darkness, who is of this world, cometh. Uh, either way, prince of darkness, prince of the world. He's trying to put in perspective just how dark the world is. Dark enough that it's about to snuff out the light of the world, but only momentarily. It will come shining back in a moment. But this prince of darkness that's coming, he hath nothing in me. Now think about that. JST clarifies it. He hath no power over me. But he hath power over you. And that would be chilling. I'm not going to succumb to the prince of darkness. But will you? How will you respond to the darkness? Will you hold to the light? Or will you, will you betray it, Judas? Will you deny it, Peter? Will you... Will the light shine in darkness and the darkness comprehend it not? Well, the choice will be made individually by each of us. The Lord then says, But that the world may know that I love the Father. And as the Father gave me commandment, even so I do. Arise, let us go hence. And it's with that that we, we rise from the triclinium, that we leave the upper room, that we begin our descent to a garden where Jesus will perform the ultimate act of love to his Father. Did you catch how he said it? 
that the world may know that I love the Father? And the Father's given me commandments, even commandments that straighten me, even commandments that trouble my mortal side, my human heart. Let's go. It's time. It's time to prove my love by showing my obedience. That to me is an incredible, the way that frames what's about to take place. Hold on to that as we turn to Gethsemane next week. And this moment of resolve as Jesus gets up and gets going out the door, down the valley, arise, let us go hence. I've got love to show and commandments to keep. And to him, that's what the atonement was. Now, chapter 15 then begins with (laughs) the continuation of the conversation. The sermon's not over. And Jesus is now teaching along the way. (laughs) It's amazing how he does it. Because in some ways, this is a field trip complete with visual aids. We've talked about this before in his parables. That so often Jesus, who had the power to make the most incredible, mind-blowing object lessons of all time. And visual aids that, <laughs> that would stun the eye. Instead, what does he do? He just points at sowers and shepherds and birds and seeds and <laughs> the most ordinary, everyday kinds of things. Well, yeah, he wants you to remember these lessons every day. So let's focus on an everyday object, shall we? and infuse it with more meaning. Some have said Jesus was a master at using the things all around him to create lessons. And then others have pushed back and said, well, but wasn't he the creator to begin with? This is just a master teacher setting up the classroom in advance. It's like, if I want to use that as an object lesson, I want birds of the field and lilies of the field. Yeah, birds of the air and lilies of the field. I should probably create some of those, shouldn't I? Yeah, well, let's make some. Well, on the way to a garden, as they're walking through this Mount of Olives, on the way to the Mount of Olives, through the Kidron Valley, the Garden of Gethsemane, imagine growth all around them. And it's with that setting, the classroom well well created by the Creator, that Jesus says this in verse 1, I am the true vine. Think about that with vines all around them. And as Jesus is walking and they're going through these vineyards or gardens and brushing them aside, and Jesus, as he passes, says, you know what, I'm, this reminds me of me. I hope it reminds you of me as well. I am the true vine. This is another one of John's I am statements that his gospel is so famous for. I am the resurrection of the life. I am the good shepherd. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Here, I am the true vine. And my father is the husbandman. How's that for a nod to the old parable of the wicked husbandman? Remember that one? The father is the master in that parable. He sends his servants to the husbandman who kill the servants. He sends his son to those servants. They kill the son. Well, in a, in a role reversal, the father is the husbandman here. Oh, no wickedness at all. But this husbandman is caring for the vine, making sure it can spread its branches and, be, and bring forth fruit. 
Now, that's what the Lord is after. He says in the next verse, every branch in me, it's got to be tied in. It's got to be grafted. It must be connected to the true vine. But if that branch is in me, if it beareth not fruit, then what's the husbandman do? What does the, the Lord of the vineyard end up doing? He taketh it away. What about those that are bearing fruit? Well, <laughs> notice the next phrase. Every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it. We would say he prunes it, that it may bring forth more fruit. Wow, talk about serious about growth. The parable of the talents was right. <laughs> You're an austere man. You demand things of us. You have great expectations. You're right. But where much is required, much is given. And if you'll just ask for anything you need, more fertilizer, more <laughs> to, to help with the dunging, sharper tools to help with the digging, more water. How about a living variety? Anything you need, the Father will give, but He's expecting things. Remember this, anytime he talks about a vineyard uh, in, in parable form, there's usually a wine press present, which means he expects something here. This is not, these are not shade trees. It's productivity that he's seeking because he's looking for fruitfulness. If you cannot bring forth fruits, meat for repentance, then what did John the Baptist say? Then the axe is already laid at the root of the tree. He doesn't even have to go back into the tool shed to find one. It's just pick it up and start to swing. Are you bringing forth fruit? If not, he'll take you away. And even if you are, don't get complacent. Remember the parable of the sower? Good ground isn't just good enough. It needs to be good and then better and ultimately best. We need to go from 30-fold to 60-fold to 100-fold. Now again, the Lord is patient. Don't run faster than you have strength. But run when you can. Run into the field and work. Pruning so that the fruit is even more fruitful. <laughs> you understand this? It's amazing to me what the Lord... This, this is Jacob 5 all over again. And all of the things that the Lord of the vineyard does for his vineyard. To the point when he asks, what more could I have done? He's got no answer. We always will. There's always more that we can do. And the Lord is asking us to grow up in him and become even more wise and more faithful servants. Now, verse 3 through 5, he says, Now ye are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. But remember, present cleanliness is no guarantee of future worthiness. Nothing's permanently fixed here. So how do we stay clean? How do we hold on to the, the washing of feet? The Lord answers that question. Abide in me, and I in you. And then he goes back to this metaphor he's been using. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine, no more can ye, except ye abide in me. I am the vine. He repeats that I am statement. What does that leave us? Ye are the branches. He that abideth in me and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me, ye can do nothing. Remember when we talked about the parable of the sower? And I think it was the Mark account that mentioned that on the stony ground, the problem was not that there wasn't water. It was there. It was just deep. 
And some plants survived. Remember, sunlight is good. <laughs> it helps plants grow as long as they have a, a, an adequate water source. And what was the problem among those plants that grew up, sprang up, and then withered and died under, under the heat of the sun? They had no root in themselves. They were tapping into someone else's taproot. And we talked about that as being a negative, because you've got to be able to stand on your own two feet, right? Well, yes and no. Yes, we need to learn for ourselves. We need to come and gain independent testimonies. But, based on John 15, none of us are independent. Not truly. Nor should we be. We must be interdependent with the Lord. Truly tapped into Him. Because not only does He have the ultimate tap root down to the water table. He is the water. He is the living water. And if we come unto him, we will never thirst. Do you understand the importance of being connected to Christ? Abiding in him? He talked about him coming and setting up his abode with you. Well, hear that same root word, abiding Elder, uh, Elder Holland gave another great talk on this. And I think it was right after his time spent a year in Chile as the area president. And he said, you know what? Even a gringo like me can understand the cognate behind the Spanish word for this. In English, we say abide. In Spanish, it was permanecer en mi. And permanecer, permanent. Can you hear it? Even gringos? Will we remain with him? Will we endure to the end? Will we abide? Will we be permanent disciples? That's what he's asking for. And without that, there's no way that we'll be able to survive spiritually. Because the sunlight, oh, it's, it's getting hotter. It's beating down. And persecution and tribulation and affliction are all around us. If we hope to ever bear fruit, we cannot do that on our own. We have to be connected to Christ. And what connects us? Our covenants. That's why keeping those covenants is of such great importance. It's actually one of the things I love most about the comforter. Both comforters. The first comforter, the spirit. The second comforter, Christ himself. Abiding spirit, constant companionship. Uh, son, the Son of God, a, a, an advocate with the Father, but also a, a comforter right alongside us. The abiding, the permanence in all of those covenant relationships. What I love about that is what's the opposite? When the Lord says, I will not leave you comfortless. You know the Greek word for that? Speaking of cognates, even us gringos can hear this one. Orphanos. That's what he meant by, I won't leave you comfortless. I won't leave you an orphan. You'll be part of the family of faith. My covenant sons and daughters. It's amazing what the Lord is inviting us into. If we'll just stay. Despite the fact I work with people in faith crisis so often, and despite the fact I hear so many stories of people who have left the church, thankfully it hasn't hardened me against that. And my heart still hurts 
for those that have left or those that are struggling and wondering whether or not they'll stay. If you allow the Spirit to convey the message of John 15, it's an invitation. It's more than an invitation. It's a plea. Please stay. For your sake, for Christ's sake, for the kingdom's sake, to be fruitful, to bring forth fruit meat for repentance, abide in him. To cut off a branch and to cast it aside, there will be no growth but to stay. And even if you've been, if you've cut yourself off at one point, that's the miracle of grafting. <laughs> that the Lord can bring you back in and take part of that living vine and cut it to break the bread, to cut the branch, to open a wound that allows something to enter, to become one in it. It's amazing to watch. Go, go find a YouTube video. Go watch, watch something that shows the process of grafting. And it is in some ways doing damage, causing pain to the original plant to make room for something dead to come in and gain new life. To think about that element when Jesus says, I am the true vine and you're the branch. If you've cut yourself off, I'll take you back. I want you home. I want to abide in you and you in me. I just want you to stay. Let the Lord reassure you with that. Let him invite you, and I pray that we'll accept the invitation. Verses 6 through 8 then follow. If a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch and is withered, exactly as the parable of the sower would tell us. And then what do you do with that branch that's withered and cast forth? There's still some purpose for it. This is like salt that's lost its savor. It's still good to be trodden underfoot. At least it can be ice melt. Well, speaking of melting things, what do you do with these withered branches? Men gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. At least it's good for firewood. Now, if you think about the fire of cleansing the earth at the second coming, I want it to be purifying fire, not consuming fire. And a lot of that depends on what kind of branch I will be. If I still have living water flowing through me, into me, from the true vine himself. So the Lord says, if ye abide in me, and my words abide in you, ye shall ask what ye will, and it shall be done unto you. You can be fully trusted. You've got power of attorney. You're abiding in me. Herein is my Father glorified, that ye bear much fruit, so shall ye be my disciples. That's what a true disciple does. They are disciplined enough to stay with the Savior, to abide in him. God can trust you because he knows that your purposes are his. Your will is his will. You'll do things his way. You'll live his life. You'll abide in him. So he says in verse 9, As the Father hath loved me, so have I loved you. See Jesus following the Father's example of love? Now we can do the same. We can follow Jesus' example of love. Father loved me. I love you. 
Reverse it. I love the Father and will do the Father's will. Do you love me enough to do my will, to remain in me, to abide with me? You get that same sense of abiding in the next phrase. Continue ye in my love. Just continue. Stay with me. Stay plugged in. Why would we ever want to unplug ourselves from that? Now, how do we continue in his love? We should already know. Next phrase. If ye keep my commandments... Ye shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. That's how it works. These things have I spoken unto you, that my joy might remain in you, and that your joy might be full. Oh, perfect love. Unconditional in its love, but conditional in its blessings. Things he cannot do for us. He cannot cause... (laughs) Branches to grow on their own. They have to abide in him. And we abide through our obedience. It's what allows us to stay connected. Our covenants. We cannot cut those off. Verse 12 then he says, This is my commandment. That ye love one another as I have loved you. Sound like what he said back in the upper room at the end of chapter 13? This new commandment, here he is reaffirming it. Love one another and not your kind of love. The kind that has no limits. The kind that only cares about the short term and not the long term. No, love one another as I have loved you. He then says, greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Ye are my friends if ye do whatsoever I command you. Can you see what the Lord is saying there? Talk about a personal perspective on what he's about to do. This is not just keeping commandments for the Father. This is self-sacrifice on behalf of his friends. We'll talk about this more when we get to Gethsemane next week, when we get to Calvary the week after. I will do this for you because you are my friends. That's what he says. It's not just to keep this in the abstract. You know what? The greatest act of love anyone could ever do is to lay down their life for their friends. Leave it at that. No, the very next sentence, ye are my friends, which drops the hint. What am I about to do? I'm about to lay down my life for you. As the greatest act of love imaginable. And you know what? You'll be my friends. You'll stay my friends. You'll continue in my love if you'll simply abide in me by keeping the commandments. Obedience as evidence of our love runs throughout this farewell discourse. Jesus then builds on that idea of friendship. I will prove my friendship to you through my death. You can prove your friendship to me through your life. And while we're talking about friendship, let me define it again. Next verse. Henceforth, I call you not servants, for the servant knoweth not what his Lord doeth. But I have called you friends, for all things that I have heard of my Father I have made known unto you. Interesting definition or distinction. What's the difference between servants and friends? Well, servants don't get the inside scoop. 
Servants don't have to know why the Lord is, their Lord is doing things. They just have to know the Lord asks them, and, and they do it. Friends, on the other hand, have a relationship where they can ask, now, why are we doing this? Uh, can, can, you want to let me in on, on your thought process? And I love that the Lord is willing to do that with his friends so that we can know not just what we're supposed to be doing, but why we're supposed to be doing that. If we are true friends of the Lord, we can obey with eyes wide open. This is not blind obedience. That's what servants do. But to be a friend to the point that we know the Lord well enough, we have a relationship with him to the point that we understand why he's asking us to do these things. That's not to say that everything will be crystal clear. Adam and Eve didn't understand completely why they were living the law of sacrifice, but they had a relationship with the Father and the Son. They knew who, even if they didn't understand why. They were friends, not mere servants. And we can be friends too. The Lord is inviting us into that friendship. And we need to recognize the source of that invitation. It's Him letting us in. It's not us just barging in the door. The Lord makes that clear in verse 16. And this is one of my favorite verses. Often when people have asked me, like, why did you decide to be a seminary institute teacher? What got you into this, this world of religious education? And my go-to answer is always John chapter 15, verse 16, where the Lord says to his apostles, ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you and ordained you that ye should go and bring forth fruit and that your fruit should remain that whatsoever ye shall ask of the Father in my name, he may give it you. I love that verse from start to finish. In some ways, the Lord is putting the apostles in their place. You're not here at your request. You're not here doing me favors. And that's definitely the case for me when it comes to teaching the gospel. It was a gift from God to me to let me serve a mission, to let me teach Seminary Institute, and to let me teach students now at BYU what a gift to be allowed to bear his name and share his gospel. He's letting us do this. He's calling us to serve. It's not us offering our services. And yes, God, I can do you a favor or two. I'm willing to offer myself. No, you have not chosen me, Peter, James, John, the rest. I chose you. I invited you to leave your nets behind. I welcomed you from your receipt of custom, Matthew. I've rescued you all by calling you into my kingdom and into my service. So that's the first thing to keep in mind. You didn't choose me. I chose you. You're here under my allowance. But why did I choose you? I don't only chose you, I ordained you. So I've given you authority. I've given you responsibility. There's a mantle you bear. Beyond that, what's that ordination for? It's to bring forth fruit. Why do you think I'm digging and dugging and, and watering and weeding? Why do you think I'm doing so much working with you and hoping to work in you so I can keep working through you? But it's not enough to be fruitful. There's the next phrase. I mean, each one that... I'm, I'm so driven by each of them. Not only do I need to be fruitful in my service to the Lord, but that fruit needs to remain. And that's hard. 
I think back to people that I taught in the mission field who gained testimonies. But have they chosen to abide in the Lord? And some of those decisions to the negative still break my heart. Almost 30 years later. When I think of students that I've taught and decades pass, has that fruit? I knew there was fruit when they were teenagers. I knew there was fruit when they were in class together and we had these amazing experiences and the light bulb came on and I could see it. Is the light still on? This is true of all our relationships. Not just students we've taught, but children we've raised and friends we've made and companions we've served with. And Do they still abide? Does our fruit remain? I'm not saying that we need to take everyone else's departures so personally that it paralyzes us. But I am saying we need to take them a little personally. We do need to ask, Lord, is it I? And recognize that there is more that we could do for our vineyard. But we also need to realize that it's not all us and we're not the only part. They have agency too. We need to strike a balance. We need to find the Goldilocks zone. But we need to, we need to aim for abiding. We need to pursue permanence. Every time that we work in the vineyard, we need to have not only short-term, let's make it through this lesson, but long-term. A friend of mine just said to me, it's not enough in our teaching to inform. We must transform. And I love that thought. A permanent transformation. A grafting in never to be cut off again. That's what we're after. No wonder. I mean, if this is daunting to you, like it is to me, uh, wondering, Elder Hall, no, Elder Irene once said that great faith has a short shelf life. And that is sad, but true. And how long does that, do the, do the fires of faith keep burning before they, they start to fade? No wonder we need to have the well of living water within us. No wonder we need to have the tree of life inside. No wonder we need to become, to some degree, self-sufficient. Well, never sufficient in self, independent of Christ. But you know what I mean, right? If this is, feels like a tall order and feels like we've already failed, that's why the last phrase in verse 16 is so powerful. Whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he'll give it. Because he knows it's a tall order. He knows it's an impossible task. Well, impossible without the help he's offering you. So ask for it and you'll receive it. Seek and you'll find. Knock, it will be opened unto you. And what will be opened? The whole tool shed. What do you need? I can fertilize faith like nobody's, nobody else. I can weed right alongside you. The Lord is asking us to, he's given us something that is too hard for us to do. So we have reason to turn to him. Without his help, no permanent good will ever be done because he is the true vine. We must abide in him and connect other people to him so that they have hope of abiding as well. Jesus then says in verse 17, these things I command you, that ye love one another. 
Wait, you keep saying that? Yeah. You realize why? It's the most important command I can leave you with. So I want it echoing, resonating in your heart. I never want, never want you to forget this commandment. Love one another. I even love that right on the heels of what he just said. Because if we hope to bring forth fruit, then love the plant. If we hope for that fruit to remain, then we can't shame them or chide them into sticking around. It's going to be love that holds them in place. It will be love and nothing else that allows for an eternal abiding. So love one another. He then shifts from love, one point of emphasis, to world, the other point of emphasis. Because the Lord says, if the world hate you, we talk about love on the one hand, let's talk about hatred on the other, and it's the world that's going to hate you. If it hates you, please know this, it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love his own. But because ye are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the, Lord, the world hateth you. Of course it's going to hate you. We're ruining the world's plans by loosening the world's grip on people. We're cutting them off of the world and then grafting them into the true vine. All Satan has is artificial plants. He has no living water to offer them. There's no good soil. He is wayside. He's trampling you down. He's picking you off by the, by the, the birds of the air. And he wants to keep things that way. And as we wean people off the world, as we pry them loose from its cares, oh, no wonder there is opposition. No wonder the bells of hell are ringing. Because we're public enemy number one among the hosts of hell. Satan knows what you're trying to accomplish. And so his kingdom, namely the world, He's the prince of darkness and the prince of this world. No wonder he's got us in his crosshairs. There will be opposition. Welcome it. Expect it. Embrace it. It is evidence that you are doing the Lord's work in the Lord's way. Blessed are you if they persecute you. For so persecuted they the prophets that went before you. Right? This is a Sermon on the Mount. You're in good company. In fact, you're in the company of Christ. Next, verse 20. He says, Remember the word that I said unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they have kept my saying, they will keep yours also. But all these things will they do unto you for my name's sake, because they know not him that sent me. You see where, like I said, we're in good company? If it hates you, please know it hated me first. If it opposes you, it, it opposed me. If you've been persecuted, I was persecuted first. Paul will call this the fellowship of his sufferings. We'll see in the book of Acts, Peter and John rejoicing in the fact that they were counted worthy to suffer persecution. It's one of the things that binds us to Christ. We may not have a whole lot in common with him, but if we can suffer for his name, if we can endure opposition, persecution, Jesus was not above that. And since we are his servants, then we're certainly not above that either. Let it come. He next says in verse 22, If I had not come and spoken unto them, they had not had sin. 
which is interesting. That, that's the equivalent of ignorance is bliss. If you don't know any better, then I guess it's not doesn't count as sin against you. Well, if you're here to eliminate sin, then why did you come at all? Because then everyone could have blissfully lived in their ignorance. It's like, no, that's just being oblivious to the pain that your sins are causing you. <laughs> Eliminating, we've talked about this before with the guilt gap, right? Lowering the top level is not the answer. It's bringing up the bottom level. You don't forget your beliefs. You alter your behaviors. You repent, okay? You don't rationalize. So, yes, I had a reason for coming. It's God's reason. But, as he's admitting here, if I hadn't come, oh, you wouldn't be feeling this guilt gap. You wouldn't be feeling the pain of recognizing what you're doing wrong. But then he goes on. But now they have no cloak for their sin. It wasn't a cloak you needed. It was the robes of righteousness that you required. It's me coming to cover your nakedness. Forget the, the, the worldly cloaks of rationalization. No, those, that's a fig leaf. Okay, And it's, it is not going to cover you. He then says, He that hateth me hateth my father also. If I had not done among them the works which none other man did, they had not had sin. But now they know better. Now have they both seen and hated both me and my father. But this cometh to pass, that the word might be fulfilled that is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. Now that last line is a quote from the 69th Psalm. Jesus already quoted the 41st. Uh, tomorrow he'll quote the 22nd. Here he is quoting the 69th, which says in verse 4, they that hate me without a cause, that's where he gets this phrase, right? They hated me without a cause. But if you're a good Jewish kid that knows your synagogue well, then how does the song, psalm end? They that hate me without a cause are more than the hairs of mine head. They that would destroy me, being mine enemies wrongfully, are mighty. This is starting to weigh heavy on Christ. They've hated me for no good reason. Because all I've ever done is for their sake. Even stripping them of the cloak of, of self-confidence, stripping them of their pride, exposing them to the realities of their own nakedness, so that they could then come unto me and be covered by my robes of righteousness. Everything I've done, all the things that they hate me for, have been done out of love. They haven't understood, and therefore they hate me without a cause. And there are so many who do more than the hairs of my head. They are mighty, these enemies of mine. Mighty to the point that they will prevail for a moment after which I'll return with healing in my wings, with yet greater robes of righteousness with which to cover them if they'll simply come unto me. I don't want to be your enemy. Why do you, why are you so determined to be mine? I've said this to my kids on occasion when they just want to fight and, and I've often said, my dukes are down. I'm on your side. 
I'm trying to help. Please understand that I'm disciplining out of love. Or I'm saying no, because I know that yes would ultimately hurt you. It's out of love that I'm doing this. And Jesus is saying exactly that. Do not hate me. You have no reason to. He then concludes this chapter with another nod to the Holy Ghost. Over and over he reminds them of love. Over and over he invites them out of the world. And over and over he will connect himself both to Father and to Spirit in this perfect Godhead equally intent on bringing us home. That's how this chapter ends. Verse 26 and 27. But when the Comforter is come, the one that will make sure you're not an orphan, the one that adopts you back into the family of faith, the one that comforts and reassures and blesses and helps, when that Comforter is come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, again, I won't leave you as an orphan. I won't leave you comfortless. You'll always have one. If it's not me, then it will be it. You'll always have access. Even the Spirit of Truth, another beautiful title for this Holy Ghost. This Spirit of Truth, which proceedeth from the Father, he shall testify of me. And ye also shall bear witness, because ye have been with me from the beginning. Oh, the Spirit is a gift from the Father through the Son. The Spirit of Truth will bear witness of all truth, will comfort, but also will confirm. You know these things. Hold on to them. Abide in me. Be permanent. And best of all, how talk about I've chosen you and ordained you to bring forth fruit and remaining fruit, faithful fruit as well. That last line, it's not just that the Holy Ghost will testify of me. You will too. You will bear witness because you know you've seen. There's nothing better than that. My youngest daughter just taught a lesson in Young Women's on Sunday. And I was helping her prepare. And afterwards, I said, how, so how'd the lesson go? And she was beaming. She wasn't beaming before class. <laughs> she was so nervous and scared. and like, oh, I'm not well prepared. And I'm like, you got this. And she, and she did. Well, the Spirit had it, and she had the Spirit, and she loved the experience. And I asked her what were your favorite parts of the lesson and what parts really resonated. Were there parts of what you taught that you could just tell? And she, again, eyes lit up. It was like, oh, when I taught this one part, you could see people like their eyes like lit up. And I'm like, isn't that the best part of teaching? Seeing a light bulb go on for someone? It's one of my, it's, I told her, it's one of the things that I fell in love with on my mission to the point that I wanted to keep seeing that happen for the rest of my life. And I said, welcome to the family business. <laughs> this is what we do, we teach. And for her to bear witness and for people to accept that witness was a sweet experience to see in her. I'm sure it's a sweet experience for any father, especially our heavenly one, to see in us that we are bearing witness of truths that are of infinite worth to him, that we can bear witness of the same things the Spirit wants to bear witness of. This hit, hit me on my mission, and it's hit me ever since. 
as a young missionary, I would always pray, Heavenly Father, please send the Spirit to bear witness of the things that I'm teaching. We've got these set, six discussions, and I'm going to teach these principles, and please send the Spirit to just confirm that everything comes from you. And the Spirit always would. But the older I got as a missionary, and the more I taught people who'd already been through discussions a million times, and it hadn't been sufficient for their conversion. Or as a young seminary teacher, or an older institute teacher, or a current religion professor, I, I stopped praying that the Lord would send the Spirit to confirm my teachings. That seems a little self-centered, doesn't it, on, my, on a teacher's part? That makes me seem like the senior companion, and the Spirit the junior companion. Remember that as a senior companion, especially if you had a greenie in a foreign language, and you're like, I know you don't know how to teach much yet. Just bear witness of whatever I say, would you? Would you? I'll teach the principle, I'll bear my testimony, and then that's your cue to just give a second witness. Okay? Can you at least do that much? Say, yo tambien, okay? me too, if you got nothing else. Is that what we're asking the Holy Ghost to do? I'm going to bear witness of these things. I'm going to teach. I mean, the end of John 15, you said that's what we're going to do. But we're not the senior companion. We don't just wink at the Spirit and say, okay, now go. That, that, that's your cue. Confirm. No. We're the junior companion. He's the senior companion. That's what I love at the end of this, of this chapter. The comforter will come. The, the Father will send that Spirit in the name of the Son, and the Spirit of truth will confirm all truth. He will testify of these things. By the way, so should you. So here's how my prayers have changed over time. No longer asking, please send the Spirit to confirm the things I teach. But instead, please inspire me to teach the things the Spirit wants to confirm. Do you sense the difference there? What does this student need? What should this class commit to? My daughter or my son. What truth can I tailor to meet their individual needs? Only the Spirit knows that. And so, Senior Companion, Holy Ghost, what do you want to testify of today? Please reveal that to me so I know what I should be teaching in the first place. And I will give a second witness to the witness that you want to bear. That is what the Lord is teaching here. That is what he is trying to prepare his servants to do. And it is a mission that is meant to carry us through the rest of our lives. Now, at this point in the sermon after supper, in the farewell discourse, Jesus is only about halfway done. We've studied chapter 14 and chapter 15. We now have 16 and 17 ahead, and they are incredible. 17 especially. What a grand finale of this farewell discourse. To jump into 16, though, we've seen already in 13 last week and in 14 and 15 this week, an emphasis on the Spirit. And that emphasis will continue through chapter 16. He starts in verse 1, 2, and 3. These things have I spoken unto you that you should not be offended. So please don't be surprised when all that persecution comes. Remember, they persecuted me first. Uh, don't think that God has abandoned you or turned against you. He has not. This is not meant to offend. 
just realize what we're up against. The world and its darkness and the prince of that darkness. I'm telling you all of this in advance so it doesn't offend you. He goes on, they shall put you out of the synagogues. Yea, the time cometh that whosoever killeth you will think that he doeth God service. And these things will they do unto you because they have not known the Father nor me. Wow, you talk about an irony. People thinking they're doing God's work by stopping you from doing God's work. Yeah, that's ironic. All I'm doing is trying to build God's kingdom trying to bear testimony of him, and yet you call me unchristian. You anathematize me. You turn me into a heretic. You say, it's the exact opposite of what I'm trying to accomplish. Now, many of us have probably felt the sting of that irony. Trying to teach people about Jesus, and then being accused of not being Christians in the process. I would rather be on the receiving end of that than on the giving end. And so, can we take a moment and flip it around and say, Lord, is it I? Do I ever do that? Do I, in my zeal, in my testimony, in my conviction that this is God's true church, which it is, But do we deny other people the opportunity to build Christ's kingdom as well? As Elder Orson F. Whitney said, there's way more work to be done than just Latter-day Saints can do. As section 10 of the Doctrine and Covenants conveys, the Lord's sense of kingdom and church is far more expansive than, than ours tends to be. So please do not be guilty of this. It's bad enough to be on the receiving end. It's worse to be on the giving end. And when you see good people of other faiths doing whatever they can to engage in God's service, do not accuse that of ungodliness. We're in this, we're all in this together far more than, than either party is willing to admit. As we engage in interfaith work, or just have interfaith friendships, I hope that we remember that. Do not be offended, the Lord says, but I think he'd also say, and please do not offend others. Verse 4, he then says, But these things have I told you, that when the time shall come, ye may remember that I told you of them. So this is the fourth I have told you before that we've seen from Jesus so far. Don't be surprised by Judas and his betrayal. Don't be surprised by the signs of the times and the deception of the elect. Don't be surprised by my crucifixion as I go forward along this path. Here, don't be surprised by your own persecution. They're going to, you're going to have a target on your chest as a faithful disciple of Jesus Christ. What else did you expect? He then says, These things I said not unto you at the beginning, because I was with you. <laughs> Part of me is like, I didn't want to scare you off when I first invited you to come, okay? But also, once you came and I was with you and you sense the blessings that come when you abide in me, yeah, it's not just dangers that discipleship in, entails. It's glory. 
And so, yeah, I didn't tell you all of this at the beginning. I was with you. You felt safety there with as long as I was here. But now that I'm leaving, that's what he says next. Now I go my way to him that sent me. And none of you asketh me, whither goest thou? But because I have said these things unto you, sorrow hath filled your heart. Now the end of that's a little confusing. None of you asks me, whither goest thou? Well, isn't that what they were asking back in chapter 14? You know, poor Thomas, we don't know the way. How are we supposed to follow? Where are you going? Oh, you know. You know better than you realize. So no need to ask that. In fact, let your heart tell you. You know what's ahead. Sorrow hath filled your hearts. Why do you think I started chapter 14 with don't let your hearts be troubled? Why do you think I ended chapter 14 with the same thing? Don't let your hearts be troubled. Why do you think I keep reassuring you? You're not orphans. I'm not leaving you alone. I'll send you a comforter in my place. But the fact that you feel sorrow, this kind of sinking feeling, you know where I'm going. You know where this pathway leads. Stiffen your spine. Strengthen your resolve. Be determined in your discipleship to abide, not just endure, to the end. Now it's with that in mind that the next few verses mean, can take on so much deeper meaning. You know I'm going. You, you have a sense of that. It's the sinking feet suspicion. It's the sorrow in your heart. So then he says in verse 7, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is expedient. It's necessary. It's essential. It has to be this way. It's expedient for you that I go away. Now, wait a minute. It's not just expedient for me that I go away. Well, yes, it's that too. This is the mission for which I've been sent. And so it's expedient in me that I go. But more than that, it's expedient for you. This is like uh, what he said about Lazarus and the death, that it's for their sakes that I'm going to postpone my coming. It's, it's for, I did it for you. I was glad for your sakes that I was not there. In this case, it's expedient for you that I go away. And you could picture them just reeling with this. Like, are you, what, are you, what are you talking about? If you really wanted to do something for our sakes, then you'd stay. You'd never leave. Because we're starting to feel like orphans. Comfortless. Well, that's why the Lord's, what the Lord says next is so powerful. It is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. Wow, really? Now, if that doesn't put in perspective the significance of the Spirit, I don't know what does. Because what the Lord is there saying is, if I stick around, then, then the Spirit can't come. I have to clear the stage to make way for Him. And so it's in your own best interest. It's for your sake that I'm passing the baton to the next member of the Godhead. The Father gave it to me, and I have run this mortal race. The Word was made flesh. The Father sent the Son, first passing of the baton. Now the Son leaves to make way for the Spirit, second passing of the baton. 
each member of the Godhead running its leg of the race of redemption. But for this, the Lord to say that in some ways this is an upgrade, how is that even possible? Well, there's things the Spirit can do with you that the mortal Messiah simply can't. There's ways that he can abide in you that I cannot. There's interdependence and growing independence. This is a chance for you to grow up in God in ways that you cannot do in my presence, ways that you must do in my absence, but not the Spirit's absence. You're not an orphan. I haven't left you comfortless. You'll have comforter number one to prepare you until comforter number two can return to you. You understand the significance of the Holy Ghost? That, that this passage is amazing to me. Like we talked at the end of last week's lesson, because I'm leaving, so now I say unto you, a new commandment I give unto you to love one another as I have loved you. Remember the context of that in our conversation last week? We are meant to be the replacement for the Savior's love. I know that's a tall order. But we're supposed to love them in a way that they will be reminded of the Lord's love for them. In a way, the Spirit's supposed to do the same thing. You see what Jesus is doing? I'm stepping back, and what's going to take my place? Well, two things. The Holy Ghost as a source of comfort, and fellow disciples as a source of love. Yes, the Spirit will convey love too. And yes, you disciples can also help with a measure of comfort. But that's how we're going to divide and conquer, so to speak. The Spirit will come once I leave. We don't understand all the reasons why. Does this mean the, whole, the, the apostles or people in Jesus' time period never felt the Holy Ghost? No. Uh, what do you think drew them to him to begin with? But to have the gift of the Spirit, that would wait upon the, late, the, the Lord's departure. We'll get this when we get to the beginning of the book of Acts, and the day of Pentecost, and the Holy Ghost shed forth upon the apostles and others. In the Bible dictionary, if you read about the Holy Ghost, it does say that for some reason, which we don't completely understand, the Holy Ghost was not completely operative as a permanent gift during the ministry of Jesus. In, in my mind, I know this is an oversimplification, but it almost feels like, well, is one member of the Godhead at a time. And since you have the Son with you, I'm not yet going to give you that spirit as a gift. Uh, but once the Son departs, then the gift of the Holy Ghost will be given. If you miss Jesus, turn to fellow disciples in hopes that they can love you like Jesus did, but also, more than anything, seek the Spirit. And the Spirit will bring all things to your remembrance, what Jesus has said unto you, including the fact that he loves us. The Spirit will be here as to take the place of the Savior until the Savior returns. No wonder we need to live worthy of the Holy Ghost 24-7, our entire lives. Then, staying with the same subject, the Lord goes on and says, When he is come, this comforter, this advocate, 
We're back to a courtroom scene with this next phrase. When he has come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. And that word reprove in the Greek, it means to convict. It means to show to be guilty. So not an advocate for us, but also a, a prosecutor of the world, including its prince of darkness. Now, specifically, he said the world, he'll reprove the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. And then he explains those three. Of sin, because they believe not on me. Now, think about what the Spirit's going to do there. The Spirit will convict you of sin because you didn't heed the Lord's invitation to repent of those sins. You didn't believe on me, and therefore you were stuck with your sins. You stayed with them. You chose to abide in the wrong thing, a dead plant, not a true vine. And so the Spirit will come and reprove you, convict you, that your sins are still on you. You didn't believe enough to repent. That's the first one. First conviction. Second conviction. The Spirit will convict you of righteousness because I go to my Father and ye see me no more. In other words, the Spirit's going to convict you of your so-called righteousness, showing you that it wasn't righteous at all. Since, well, you didn't end up where Jesus is. You don't see him anymore. He's gone to his Father. Oh, you didn't come? Hmm. Then maybe your righteousness was so, simply self-righteousness. This was the, the, the pride of the scribes and Pharisees and hypocrites. This is whited sepulcher, and the Lord has turned you inside out. The Spirit has held up a mirror to show you your true self and your lack of righteousness. How's that for conviction number two? And then conviction number three, he will convict you of judgment because the prince of this world is judged. And tragically, it was a false judgment that was passed upon him. Innocence himself was, was judged guilty. And so, of course, the Spirit will come to convict you of your failure to judge righteously. You, you chose poorly. You didn't see the light for what it is. The darkness comprehended it not. After which he says in verse 12, I have yet many things to say unto you. We were just beginning, even though this is the farewell discourse. I squeezed as much as I could into three short years, but man, I wish I had more time. I, this is like Joseph Smith. I wish I could just preach to the saints again. For Jesus, infinitely more important. I've got so much more I want to say. Then why not say it? Why not extend chapter after chapter after chapter? Well, here's why. Ye cannot bear them now. The teacher's ready to extend class, but the students keep looking anxiously at the bell, feeling like they've already been overloaded. I, I'm at the, the saturation point. I, I don't understand everything you've said already. I'll spend the rest of my life unpacking the Savior's principles. And sure enough, we will. But again, the Lord's statement, you can't bear them now. But another reason it's good for me to leave and let the Spirit come. Notice what he says next. Howbeit when he, the Spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you into all truth. For he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak. And he will show you things to come. He shall glorify me for he shall receive of mine and shall show it unto you. Those are all roles of the Holy Ghost. To show you things to come. And to reassure you that it's coming. So help you be patient in the meantime. To glorify the Lord. 
and to glorify him in you as you come to more fully know him and become like him. This spirit of truth will guide you. Such a great verb. He's not just going to dump all truth upon you. The Lord himself wasn't going to do that either, right? I've got so much more to say, you just can't handle it yet. So what am I going to do? As a mortal Messiah, I can only be here for so long. But a celestial spirit of truth can come and weave truth into the sinews of the soul. He can make you more than, than what you are and can guide you gradually, gently, tailor-make these teachings so that how much milk, how much meat, how do we transition from one to the other? That's why, as I've often lamented, the most effective approach is always the least efficient approach. Efficiency would be one size fits all and just dump out the information and, and deal with it. Oh, that's efficient, but it's not effective. Effective is one by one by one. It's, it's conversations across the table with just two people in the room and tell me your story and where are you coming from and how can I help you from here? The power of the Holy Ghost is it's individual. A solitary soul along with that spirit guiding you to truth. It's such a profound <laughs> inefficiency. But what a perfect effectiveness when the Holy Ghost comes to personally, individually guide us toward all truth. No wonder Joseph prayed in the dedicatory prayer of the Kirtland Temple that they may grow up in thee and receive a fullness of the Holy Ghost. You catch that? I, I love that difference. We're growing up in God. I use that phrase all the time. But to receive a fullness of the Holy Ghost, it's a, it's a dimmer switch, not an off-on. And when you were confirmed, when the Spirit was finally given you, then yes, the switch was turned on. But how bright? We are meant to grow brighter and brighter unto the perfect day. We are meant to grow up in God and receive a fullness of the Holy Ghost, which suggests we're at a partialness till then. Please understand what the Lord is inviting us into and what he's promising us through all of this. The spirit of truth will come and guide you. So please, be open to that guidance because you little children have a lot of growing up in God to do. That's what he meant by the beginning of that. You cannot bear all things now. In the Doctrine and Covenants, by the way, when the Lord is parting the veil and pouring out revelation upon the heads of the Latter-day Saints, he realizes that they're drinking from the fire hose. <laughs> and, okay, well, I, I want to give you so much, I'll have to stop the lesson for now and, and pick it up at some other time. This is what he says in section 78, verse 17 and 18. I love this phrase. Verily, verily, I say unto you, Ye are little children, and that's all we could ever be compared to him. Ye have not as yet understood how great blessings the Father hath in his own hands and prepared for you. And I'm trying to get you up to speed. Ah, oh, ye cannot bear all things now. Nevertheless, be of good cheer, for I will lead you along. What a promise. The Lord understands our incapacities. No wonder he starts with milk. No wonder he 
gradually begins to introduce meat. No wonder he is patient, allows the Holy Ghost to work on us and in us one-on-one. There is so much growth ahead. Emily Dickinson, the great 19th century poet, put it as beautifully as I've heard anyone say it. She said, the truth must dazzle gradually or every man be blind. Oh, that's insightful. The light of the world is shining. <laughs> you ever, I remember well, the first time I ever got my eyes dilated to see if I had some eye problems or needed glasses or whatever as a kid, and they gave me these flimsy little sunglasses, and they said, put these on before you go outside. And I'm like, these are the cheesiest looking things I've ever thought. I'm not gonna go be seen in public with these things on. That's fine, I'll be able to, to handle light. I'd never had eyes dilated. I walked outside and it was blinding. The, the truth did not dazzle gradually. And, and it made me blind. I immediately fished out those cheesy, flimsy plastic sunglasses and put them on to try to save myself. Well, the Lord knows just how bright to shine and just how much to give. Elder Maxwell actually said that in one of his very first conference talks. He said, who better than the light of the world can decide the degree of divine disclosure, whether it is to be flashlights or floodlights. Oh, that's the Maxwellian version of Emily Dickinson's words. If you're still on flashlights instead of floodlights, be patient and grow up in God. If you're overwhelmed by floodlights, be grateful for the flashlights and the flashes of inspiration that the Spirit gives. The Lord knows just how much to teach and when to teach it. So may we be patient. In verse 15, the Lord then says, All things that the Father hath are mine. Therefore said I that he shall take of mine and shall show it unto you. So this is going from Father to Son to Spirit to Self. See the process? All the Father has is mine. There's the first leg, Father to Son. Therefore said I that he shall take of mine. He is the Spirit of Truth. Okay, the Comforter, the Paraclete, the Holy Ghost, he will take of mine. So that's the second passing from Son to Spirit. What's he going to do? He shall show it unto you. There's the third passing from Senior Companion, Holy Ghost, to Junior Companion, you and me. The Lord then says, a little while and ye shall not see me. Keeps reminding this. This is, the, this is it. Farewell discourse. And again, a little while and ye shall see me because I go to the Father. Now there, it's like, wait, 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 what? A little while and you won't see me. I, I, that's starting to make sense. It's painful, but it's, I'm starting to, to accept it. You're about to be crucified. You're about to go to the Father. I'm doing my best to rejoice for you, despite the fact I'm sad for me. Uh, so I, I get the first part. What do you mean by the second? A little while and you shall see me? Well, yeah, that's the beauty. That's the resurrection. Yeah. Friday is crucifixion, but Sunday is resurrection. Dry your tears. Our separation will be temporary. In fact, it will be incredibly short, all things considered. In a way, between the two of these, a little while you won't see me, a little while and you will. He's just walked you through here and then gone and then back again. He's introduced you to life and death, and new life. Atonement, crucifixion, 
resurrection. Big picture, you could say ministry, apostasy, restoration. And in the eternal scheme of things, that's a short absence too. It will, all, all this truth will come flooding back. In verse 17, then said some of his disciples, and they're saying this among themselves. They, they don't want to speak up. They, they're embarrassed to ask him directly. We've seen that happen so many times. But here it happens again. They say among themselves, Hey, what is this that he saith unto us? A little while, and ye shall not see me. And again, a little while, and ye shall see me. And because I go to the Father. Well, what is he talking about? So, yeah, it's, it was confusing to us. It was confusing to them. Okay. Now, they said, therefore, what is this that he saith? A little while. We cannot tell what he saith. So there they are still whispering behind his back. Does anybody get this? But do you understand what Jesus has already said? He said this repeatedly, but he said it again tonight. Whatsoever you need, ask the Father and he'll give. And if you can ask the Father, you can definitely ask the Son. If what you need are better tools for the, the weeding and the watering, ask. But if what you need is a better understanding of these sayings that you find so confusing, please raise your hand. Please have the humility to admit your confusion and just ask. I've joked about this before. My oldest son has a gift for that. He doesn't care to, to show his confusion on things. And he just asks. Wait, 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 what word did you just, what does that word mean? I, I, what does it mean? I don't, I don't understand it. I'm so impressed with his humility and vulnerability to be the one in class that raises his hand and asks the question that everyone else is too embarrassed to ask, even though they're wondering. Will there be an apostle that actually speaks up or are they just going to speak to each other? What does he mean by all of this? Well, in verse 19, now Jesus knew that they were desirous to ask him, even though they didn't. So he said unto them, Do ye inquire among yourselves of that I said, a little while and ye shall not see me, and again a little while and ye shall see me? It's like, come on guys, if you're going to ask each other, you might as well ask me. Instead of whispering through the classroom, raise your hand, ask the teacher. So he says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, that ye shall weep and lament. But the world shall rejoice, and ye shall be sorrowful. That's the, a little while, and I won't be with you. You won't see me. That's the first half. But what's the second half? But your sorrow shall be turned into joy. That's the little while, and you shall see me. Come Friday afternoon and evening, it will be tears of sorrow. But come Sunday morning, it will be tears of joy and your sorrow will become joy. Please understand, life is a comedy, not a tragedy. Tra What's the difference? Tragedies have sad endings. That's what makes them tragic. But comedies, no matter how much tragedy pre preceded the end, how does a comedy end? In joyful laughter. Comedies have happy endings. And in some ways, the Lord is saying, this is a comedy. I mean, it's a drama, believe me. And it's going to seem like a tragedy later tonight and all day tomorrow. You'll still be wondering. It's like the credits are rolling on Saturday and you're not sure. Is, you're, not, you're not sure. Is there one little, that last little thing they put at the end of the credits on some movies? And will it change? Will it make, will it lead to a sequel? 
Will it be foreboding or will it be reassuring? Will, how is this play really going to end? And come Sunday, oh, your sorrow shall be turned into joy. Your weeping and lamenting will become praising and rejoicing. And the world, you see, the world's been doing it the opposite. At first, the world thought this was a, a victory. And the world rejoiced over its defeat. Darkness swallowed up the light. Well, if your sorrow is going to be turned into joy, guess what the world's joy is going to be turned into? You guessed it. Satan's ultimate sorrow. Yes, he bruised my heel, but in the process, I crushed his head. And so it goes. Speaking of comedy, it reminds me of Sarah. Her life was a tragedy, wasn't it? For most of it, a recipient of incredible promises, but promises that never seem to be fulfilled. And yet when the promise finally does come, what's she call her little boy? Isaac, which means not only rejoice, but laugh and laughter. Uh, when she laughed, when she rejoiced, she Yitzhaked, she Isaaced, and boom, there Isaac came in a fit of marvelous laughter. Jesus uses similar analogies in his next verse, verse 21. A woman, when she is in travail, can you picture Sarah here, struggling? The book of Hebrews even says she had to receive strength, act on faith, to be able to have the, the oh, fortitude, the endurance to bring forth life in her aged condition. So a woman, when she is in travail, hath sorrow. Because her hour is come, but as soon as she is delivered of the child, oh, she remembereth no more the anguish for joy that a man is born into the world. That's the, the miracle of maternal amnesia, if we can call it that. The coming of Isaac, Sarah forgot all of her sorrows. And her life went from tragedy to comedy the moment of birth. Mothers, you know this. Husbands, fathers, you do too. The age-old joke is that, uh, man, you forget your anniversary and your wife will never forget. But the pain of labor and delivery? It's amazing how quickly they've, they've gotten over that. Can't even remember it. Selective amnesia, huh? No, maternal amnesia that the intense agony of childbirth, and I can't speak from personal experience here, okay, but so many of you sisters can, that suffering is swallowed up in joy. So intense, you can't even remember much of the agony that preceded it. You see what Jesus is doing here? I'm, we saw this in Isaiah last year, that when Isaiah really wants to paint a picture of divine love. What does he use as his mortal metaphor? Mothers. A mother's love is as close to divine love as you can get. And a mother's experience in going from suffering and sorrow and travail and labor to absolute magnificent joy to the point that it eclipses everything that preceded it, that's what Jesus has in mind here. It's amazing to me because earlier he, he used seeds as a metaphor. And the seed has to die 
in its seed state if it ever hopes to come forth in something new. You have to be willing to part with the seed if you want an actual crop and, and a harvest. Well, you have to be able to part with mortality if you ever want to inherit immortality. And then he changes the metaphor to something so much more personal. Oh, forget seeds. Let's talk about, let's talk about children, shall we? Let's talk about mothers and, and, and their babies. And to go from... The language he uses, her hour is come. I remember my wife with our first child now having a, an induction date. And we knew the day, although we didn't know the hour. And we get to the hospital and they start the, the process. And my wife had never been through anything like this. Uh, it was, I mean, you're going through the valley of the shadow of death. And it's amazing mothers putting their lives on the line. And when their hour is come, can I do this? How am I straightened until it be accomplished? Jesus' hour has come. And he is beginning to feel the labor pains of bringing forth salvation into the world. And so how does he get through it? By focusing on life on the other side. By focusing on the joy that will come after the suffering. It's, to me, such a powerful phrase because you see, you see a hint of this in Alma 36. In Alma 36, Alma is talking about his own suffering and his own redemption. And the suffering for sin that was so intense he wanted to be banished, not just dead, but extinct, like banished body and spirit, like I never existed. And yet, once he lays hold of this thought of Jesus and repents of his sins and feels forgiveness flow into him, the pendulum swings equally far in the opposite direction. And this is a pendulum swing we want to be equally extreme. Okay, This is an overcorrection that isn't an overcorrection at all. It's exactly the way it needs to be, balancing both sides. Notice how Alma says it. And Alma, again, is talking about himself here. But read Jesus into it. And imagine Jesus talking about his own pain in crucifixion and his own joy in resurrection and redemption. This is Alma 36, verses 19 to 21. Alma slash Jesus says, And now behold, when I thought this, when Alma thought about Christ, or when Christ thought about us, when he thought this, I could remember my pains no more. Yea, I was harrowed up by the memory of my sins no more. That's Alma with his sins, or Jesus with his pains for our sins. But the memory's gone. And what's, in, what's there in its place? Oh, what joy and what marvelous light I did behold. Yea, my soul was filled with joy as exceeding as was my pain. Do you get this swinging of the pendulum? Equal opposites? How exceeding was the pain? Well, that's going to determine how exceeding will be the joy. That's what he says in the next verse. Yea, I say unto you, my son, that there could be nothing so exquisite and so bitter as were my pains. Yea, and again I say unto you, my son, that on the other hand, there can be nothing so exquisite and sweet as was my joy. 
That is the joy that Alma felt in forgiveness. That is the joy that Jesus feels in resurrection and extending forgiveness to us. It's what made his sacrifice and suffering worth it. And just like a mother with her maternal amnesia, this is messianic amnesia. Not, I, the Lord will remember your sins no more. I will remember my pains no more. They are swallowed up in a joy that is infinite and eternal. That's what he gets at in verse 22. And ye now therefore have sorrow, but I will see you again, and your heart shall rejoice, and your joy no man taketh from you. This is joy that is never-ending. It's undefeatable. It's indefatigable, if we want to use that word. You'll never tire of feeling it. And no one can ever take it from you again. That's the beauty of resurrection. You never die again. It's the beauty of exaltation. You never fall from grace. Do you understand, my dear friends, for whom I'm about to lay down my life in the greatest act of love imaginable. I know it's sorrow now. That's why you need a comfort and comforter. That's why I'm trying to tell you for your heart not to be troubled. It's why I'm promising you joy. I'm holding out for that joy myself. I know it will come. I want you to know that too, and I want you to wait for it. He says in verse 23, In that day ye shall ask me nothing. Now the JST says, You'll ask me nothing, but it shall be done unto you. Which is beautiful too. It's, that's what he's been saying all along. Ask and you'll receive. Seek the things you need, I promise. So in that day of great joy, anything you ask, it will be given you. But there's a part of me, despite the fact that I love the, the JST of it, I really love the original King, King, King James also. In that day ye shall ask me nothing. Because part of me, if you just leave it at that, it's like, well, what would I possibly have to ask for? If I have the, that kind of joy in Jesus, if the days of pain and persecution are in the past, and all that sorrow has been swallowed up in a joy that no one can take from me, then what would I have to ask for? I have all I could ever need. I would ask him nothing. The Lord then says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Whatsoever ye shall ask the Father in my name, since we're not yet at that day, we're still in this day. Yeah, you still got a, not, a lot of needs, but that's okay. Ask for them. If you'll ask, whatsoever you'll ask, he will give it you. Hitherto have ye asked nothing in my name. Ask, and ye shall receive, that your joy may be full. You always sense frustration on the Lord's part. Like, why aren't you asking for more stuff? I'm telling you, teaching you truth, and you're whispering behind my back, like, hey, anybody understand what he's talking about? I'm not going to ask him. Why aren't you going to ask me? Can't you be vulnerable enough to admit your inadequacy or your incomprehension? Can't you admit that you need more help than you have? Why do you think I called you and ordained you to bring forth fruit that must remain? I know that's out of your reach. 
That's why you're supposed to reach for the Redeemer instead. I can reach everything. <laughs> Highest shelf. I'll bring it down to you. I came down to you to do just that. So, hitherto have ye asked nothing in my name? Come on, guys. Be a little bit more, oh, greedy <laughs> in celestial ways. Think about the hymn, More Holiness Give Me. It's the greediest hymn in the hymn book. Every single line begins with, more, more, give me more. But read, read what they're asking for. It's, it's a godly greediness, if you can say such a thing. It's selflessness that's driving these desires. More used would I be. More Savior like thee. All of those mores are things we should be not just singing about, but pleading with the Lord to give us. Hitherto, yeah, ask for more. The way Paul talks about spiritual gifts, he uses the word covet them. Wait a minute, ten com Tenth Commandment, thou shalt not covet. Well, here's an exception to the rule. I'll give you permission to break one of the Ten Commandments. It has to be the tenth, <laughs> none of the others. And it has to be spiritual gifts. It has to be selfless desires. But ask for those things. He will give them to you. The Lord then says in verse 25, These things have I spoken unto you in Proverbs. In other words, in, in hard sayings, in metaphorical, figurative language. I, I'm, a, I'm a storyteller. I teach parables. I, I convey Proverbs. Well, that's what I've used to this point. But the time cometh when I shall no more speak unto you in Proverbs, but I shall show you plainly of the Father. At that day ye shall ask in my name, and I say not unto you that I will pray the Father for you, for the Father himself loveth you, because ye have loved me, and have believed that I came out from God. I came forth from the Father, and am come into the world. Again, I leave the world, and go to the Father. Oh, there's so much there. I love the way he says this. I'm going to go from... Oh, figurative to literal. I'm going to go from metaphor and symbol to just straight up plainness. I'm going to go from Isaiah to Nephi. <laughs> okay, no more Hebrew poetry. I glory in plainness. And what will I plainly show you? The Father. You won't just have to see him by seeing the Son. No, you'll see the Father for yourself. We will come and abide with you. That's the promise. The way he puts it, at that day, you'll ask the Father in my name. So you'll still be praying to him through me as usual. But notice, I say not unto you that I will pray the Father for you. In other words, I won't have to come and go, okay, you're too shy to go approach him yourself directly. I'll, I'll take it from here. No, our prayers will still be in the name of Christ. We will still always rely on our Redeemer. But to have the confidence in Christ to go straight to the Father, there's something here, again, about growing up in God. And we'll have that confidence. Why? Because the Father himself loveth you. And why does he love you so much? Because you loved me. I mean, believe me, one of the people, the people I love most are people that love my kids. And people that will just serve them and help them. And, and among their friends, people that would reach out and, oh, they've got a special spot in my heart. Because they love people I love more than anything. The Father's the same way. 
we love the Son, oh, then the Father loves us. We believe in the Son, then the Father believes in us and wants to give us anything we ask because He knows we can be trusted with it. I love what the Lord says also, I came forth from the Father, I've come into the world. There's condescension. Now I'm going to leave the world and come back to the Father. There's ascension. But I want it to be con-ascension also. Con-with. I came down to be with you. Will you come up to be with me? That's my hope. Where everything's coming full circle here, Christ's mission. Word made flesh. Well, now the flesh is going to return as word. Verse 29, his disciples said unto him, Lo, now speakest thou plainly, and speakest no proverb. Okay, this is starting to make sense. You're being crystal clear. Now are we sure that thou knowest all things, and needest not that any man should ask thee. <laughs> no one has to test your knowledge by asking you questions. Those scribes and Pharisees were all showed up. Well, we, we don't have to ask you anything either. By this we believe that thou camest forth from God. <laughs> I want to say there, wait, wait, now by this? It's taken you this long? Well, I guess the truth dazzles gradually. But our eyes are finally starting to see. And our hearts are starting to believe. Maybe we're ready for this next leg in the relay. Maybe we're ready for the baton to come into our awaiting hands. From the Father to the Son to the Spirit to the Self. And me sending it forth to others. Making sure the living water gets to the end of every row. Well, Jesus is a little <laughs> surprised that it's taken them this long, too. He says in verse 31, Jesus answered them, Do ye now believe? <laughs> Behold, the hour cometh, yea, is now come, that ye shall be scattered, every man to his own, and shall leave me alone. And yet, I am not alone, because the Father is with me. You see, we're going to see that next week, chapter 18 of John. And in Matthew 26 and Luke 14, excuse me, Mark 14 and Luke 22, the Gethsemane scenes that end in the sheep being scattered when the shepherd is smitten. He's telling them that here. You, you believe? Oh, good. At least you think you do. But you know what? Later tonight, you're not going to act like it. Later tonight, you will be scattered and you will leave me. Even though tonight I've been talking about true vines and needing to abide in me, you'll, you'll run in the wrong direction. I wonder also about something the Lord says here at the end. We'll deal with the departure of the disciples to, uh, next week. But the week after, when we talk about crucifixion, we'll see something that I wonder, makes me wonder about this verse. When the Lord says, you will leave me as you're scattered, but I still won't be alone. I am not alone because the Father is with me. He always has been. If you've seen the Son, you've seen the Father. I and Him, He and me, we are as one as two distinct entities possibly could be. He's always with me. We saw that earlier in John when Jesus says, the Father's always with me because I always do the things that please him. And here, a reminder of that, the Father is with me. Well, again, speaking of irony, 
the ultimate irony of Jesus doing the thing that would please the Father most and yet would suffer a withdrawal of the Father's spirit. I know that Jesus is omniscient. I know he knows all things, but again, there's a difference between knowing in your head versus knowing in your, in your experience. Cognitive versus experiential, as Elder Maxwell used to say. When Jesus says, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? To some degree, was he blindsided by the loss of that light, that companionship that he had always had with him? I'm, I'm haunted by this phrase. Even when you leave, I won't be alone because the Father will be with me. What will happen when even the Father withdraws? We'll have to wait for Calvary to see. But keep this verse in mind when we get there. Chapter 16 then ends in verse 33. These things I have spoken unto you, that in me ye might have peace. In the world ye shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Does language like that sound familiar? Peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you. Not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Same thing here. I've overcome the world, and it's the world where you find tribulation and opposition and persecution. It's the power of darkness. It's the prince of the world that has his sights set on you. But I have my heart set on you. And as long as you'll remain in my heart by letting me enter yours, if you'll show your love by keeping my commandments, then you have no reason to fear. You can be of good cheer because you will have the promise of the Lord's peace. The prince of peace versus the prince of darkness. Yeah, I think I'm choosing which kingdom I want to be a subject in. Here, the Lord has overcome the world. There's something about being almost immune to outside opposition. Where you, Christ himself, has immunized you. He has, he's, I'll put it this way, he's the mother hen. And he has clucked and we have come And he is protecting us in the arms of safety. Covering us in his protective wing. Because he faces the world. And overcomes it. And we on the inside. Therefore don't have to face the the world. Like he has. Hold on to that. That's what we need to be praying for. Because the Lord himself has a final prayer to make himself. A prayer on our behalf. Actually, not a final one. We'll see more prayers next week. The prayer of Gethsemane and taking upon himself the sins of the world. But here he has a prayer. We call this, this is John chapter 17. We call this the great intercessory prayer. To intercede. Remember, he's a paraclete also. He's an advocate, an interceder, someone right along our side, a second comforter. Well, Chapter 17, he is going to offer a prayer. It's also called the great high priestly prayer, since it's the high priest that intercedes on behalf of Israel. Pay close attention to what the Lord is offering here. We know the Lord's prayer from the Sermon on the Mount. 
President Nelson, years ago as an apostle, gave a whole conference talk about the Lord's prayers, plural. And this is one of the greatest you could possibly find. So study it, ponder it. In our own way, what parts can we repeat in prayers of our own? Verse 1, these words spake Jesus. So that's kind of looking back on chapter 14, 15, 16 that we've studied so far. That's what he spake to them. But now what's he going to speak and who he's, who's he going to speak it to? He lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father. So now this is a prayer. But it's a vocal one, enough for John to have it inscribed in his heart. Enough for us to be able to, oh, peer through the vineyard, gaze across the garden, see Jesus speaking to his father here. This almost seems too intimate for us to even intrude into. But he wants us to hear it. He wants us to eavesdrop and to, to know the pleadings of a suffering son towards his almighty father. Because this prayer is on our behalf. In 3 Nephi, he lets the people hear his prayers repeatedly. And in one of them, it says that I had never seen, ear had never heard. It had never entered into the heart of anyone. The joy that filled them when they heard Jesus pray for them unto the Father. When you were young, how did you feel when you heard mom and dad pray for you by name? You parents, what do you want your children to feel when you pray for them by name in family prayer? That specific recognition that God, that, 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 that parent, that friend, that loved one wants to lift you to God and connect you to, 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 the, to Him. What can we learn and what will we feel as we hear the Son pray to the Father for us. Well, here's what he prays for. Father, the hour is come. It's time. There's no more waiting. Labor pains have all been preliminary, but it is time to bring salvation into the world. I've left the upper room. I'm entering the garden. The hour is come. And so what am I asking for? Father, glorify thy Son. And why? Not for my sake, for thine. That thy Son also may glorify thee. I want to show my love to thee. I'm going to need thy love to be able to do it. I need thy glory in order to glorify thee. As thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. That's how he's going to glorify the Father. Because the Father doesn't need additional glory for his sake. What glorifies the Father? The salvation and exaltation of his children. I love what my grandma used to say. Oh, Granny Wilcox. She, always used, she was always more excited about our successes than anything that she ever experienced for herself. And what she would always say is, oh, here I am just basking in reflected glory. <laughs> and I loved that thinking, I want to give, I want, I want to do something right. I want to be a good kid so that grandma has reflected glory to bask in. <laughs> can you picture a humble, self-sacrificing son 
I want to exalt thy children. I want to save them. I want to bring them home because they can then glorify thee. That's what he's praying here. To give me the glory, thy glory, so I can give eternal life to as many as you want to give it to. That's my mortal mission. That's what at one meant is all about. The atonement is to make us mortal children, fallen children, to help us become at one with our heavenly parents once again. That's, that's what glorifies them. That's reflected glory. Look at how good you turned out. Oh, I was worried for a while. That's why I sent Jesus. That's why I gave him glory so that he could glorify me by sharing that glory with all of you. That's what redemption entails. Now, that's going to require covenant connections. It's going to require intimate relationships. This is family all coming home again. That's why childbirth was the ultimate metaphor. That's why he says in verse 3, and this is an all-important verse, very famous as well, this is life eternal. He's going to define it here. That they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. You get a sense there that salvation and exaltation are relational, not transactional. It's experiential, not ideological. In other words, it's not us just knowing enough things we can pass a test. It's not us just checking off enough enough boxes and earning enough merit badges. No, it's... It's more personal than that. That's why Christ had to come personally among us. And why ultimately he wants to personally come to us again. We have to know him. Remember last year in the Old Testament, we kept running across that word know, and the Hebrew behind it is yada. And that kind of knowledge is personal, experiential, relational, intimate, It's the same kind of knowledge that's used, the same word that's used to describe the relationship between husband and wife. The kind of knowledge, intimate knowledge, that brings life into the world. Speaking of childbirth, husbands and wives know each other in ways that no one else ever will ever know them. There's a vulnerability there. There's an openness there. There's a a complete exposure there. Back to Adam and Eve in the garden. Naked and unashamed. Nothing to hide. To think about knowing God. Knowing the Father. Knowing the Son. In ways that nothing is hidden. To see as they are, as we are seen. To know as we are known. That's intimate. That's relational. You Spanish speakers know the difference between saber and conocer. When you're learning Spanish, that's hard. What, two words for no? Can't we, isn't one enough? Well, no. This is actually where English is insufficient and Spanish is superior. Because there's a saber knowledge, which is more for facts and information. Anybody can do that. Just study and learn it. But there's a conocer knowledge, which is personal and intimate and familiar And which will we be as we approach the Father and the Son? Do we just know about them? And we can pass the the quiz. 
And we know what bubbles to fill in on the scantron. No, it's not enough to know about God and facts and information with which we've filled our minds. No, it has to be personal. It has to be relational. Do I conocerles? Am I so intimately acquainted with them that we've become one in ways that are life-giving? You understand the metaphor here? It can't get any more, more powerful than this. It's a knowledge unlike any we could ever experience. Herschel Pedersen was a man of such incredible faith. I'd never, I don't know if I've met, ever, ever met anyone quite like him. He was an old BYU basketball player from way back in the day. When he was older, he was called to be a liaison between the Quorum of the Twelve and the international missions of the church. This was before 70, the Quorums of the Seventy were even reconstituted. Uh, a man of incredible faith, and I got to meet him before his passing. He was in the temple presidency at Mount Tumanogos Temple. And he shared an experience with a group of us once where he got to sit in and, and invited eavesdropper in a private testimony meeting of members of the First Presidency in the Quorum of the Twelve taking place in the Salt Lake Temple. Talk about a sacred moment in a sacred place. And he said it was the most, it was the simplest testimony meeting he'd ever heard. It wasn't experiential in the way of, I had this experience and this happened to me and I learned this and isn't that cool and I know because of that. No, it was experiential, but not in a way that people were sharing experiences. It was in a way that they were sharing the results, the intimate knowledge they'd gained because of the experiences they had had with God. Because the way Brother Pedersen said it, he said, I think he said it was Marion G. Romney who started the, this little private testimony meeting. He just stood up <clears throat> and looked at his fellow apostles and prophets, seers and revelators, and said to them, my testimony is simple. I know God as God knows me. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. And that was it after which another apostle stood and moved by the same spirit, uttered essentially the same words. My testimony is like that of President Romney. I know God as God knows me. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. And Brother Patterson said that one by one, apostle by apostle, special witness after special witness, bore such simple, straightforward testimony of knowledge. The ultimate kind of knowledge. Remember what Jesus said earlier? The world's not going to accept the Spirit because they can't see it. It can't know it. The epistemological model of the world is so stiflingly narrow. But not the Lord's. Not the Spirit's. Not the type of knowledge that is synonymous with life eternal. To be in a state of permanent, infinite, everlasting 
oneness. Intimate knowledge to know him as God knows you. I'm not there yet. But I do want to grow up in God. I do want to receive a fullness of the Holy Ghost. So I'll keep abiding in him. That's what the Lord is praying for. His prayer continues in verse 4. I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. Well, almost. Just one more day. But oh, what a day. Please help me get through it. I want to be able to speak in the past tense of being fully finished with this work of redemption. So please glorify me as I have been trying to glorify thee. He says, Now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. That's a profound plea. Glorify thou me with thine own self. Pour thy glory into me. In fact, pour it back into me. The way he ends that part, with the glory with I, which I had with thee before the world was. We'll see this in the book of Philippians where it talks about Christ pouring out his premortal glory, being willing to empty himself of that. Remember we talked about that with the washing of the feet? He laid aside his garments to be wrapped up in a mere servant's towel while well, he's ready to put the, the garments of glory back on. He's asking God to be refilled with the glory he had emptied himself of. I will need that glory. I've been grappling with my own humanity as I approach Gethsemane. To endure Gethsemane and Calvary, I will need divinity. I'll need it all. So please restore it to me. Let the light shine a little brighter. May there be eternal increase. In fact, an even greater glory than what I had before, because it will be coupled with what I've learned through mortality. You sent me here for a reason, and that purpose has been accomplished, or at least soon will be. Please refill me, restore me to that glory. And by do so doing, I will be able to restore all of thy children back to thee. That's life eternal. He says in verse 6, I have manifested thy name unto the men which thou gavest me out of the world. Thine they were, and thou gavest them me, and they have kept thy word. That is a beautiful description of what an apostle is. Someone that the Father took out of the world in order to give to Christ. That's profound. An apostle, I've always pictured apostles as God's gift to us, and so they are. Whether by my own voice or the voice of my servants, it is the same. The fact that there are mere mortals, a little more like me, that can connect me to God and deliver his message to me, such a profound gift. But to see them also as a gift from the Father to the Son, of course, because that way the Son can extend his efforts through his chosen servants. That is a gift. 
No wonder he says to them, you'll do my works, you'll do greater works than I. The Father hath prepared you for that. He's given you to me to accomplish that. It's a way for me to multiply myself. And I'm so grateful. But when it says that he took them out of the world, that's powerful too. The, the father took Russell M. Nelson out of the world of medicine to give him to Christ, to build Christ's kingdom. The father took Down H. Oaks out of the world of law and gave him to Jesus to help build his kingdom. The father took Henry B. Iron out of the world of academia, education, and gave him to Christ to educate all of us in the ways of God. And apostle after apostle has been taken out of some other world to help prepare the world for the coming of Christ. I pray we can do a better job of accepting God's gift to us. The Lord certainly accepted God's gift to him. <laughs> Despite the imperfections of the gifts, he can work on that himself. In verse 7, the prayer continues, Now they have known that all things whatsoever thou hast given me are of thee. I've been telling them that all along. It's not from me, it's from the Father. Okay, the ultimate source. For I have given unto them the words which thou gavest me, and they have received them, and have known surely that I come out from thee, and they have believed that thou didst send me. The baton has been passed. They're, they're starting to get it. They don't understand everything. They still are too hesitant to ask me any questions. But they're, they're getting up to speed. Oh, we've still got a few more days. And believe me, especially once the Holy Ghost is given them, once I leave so that the Spirit can come, then look out, world. Fully formed apostles will come forth in the book of Acts, and you'll be amazed. There's no more Simon left. It's all Peter. It's all rock from that moment forward. But in the meantime, they have believed in thee, Father. They have accepted what I've given them because they know it comes from thee. I, I think that it's been sufficient for me, who's always been connected to you, to then reach out to them and, and connect to them. And now as I'm bringing those hands together and they believe in thee and are connected to thee, then now I, I can step away and leave them in thy hand. These apostles are ready to run. They've got the baton. In verse 9, he says, I pray for them. And they're going to need it. I pray not for the world. Again, this oppositionality, the source of persecution. Over and over, it's the love of God on the one hand, the wickedness of the world on the other. So I'm praying for mine, these apostles. I'm not praying for the world. I can't. They won't let me pray for them. I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me. For they are thine, and all mine are thine, and thine are mine. You get a sense of all these possessive pronouns? I love the ownership here. Do we belong to the Father and the Son? Do we give ourselves to them to the point that they can call us mine and thine? And then the Lord says, I am glorified in them. And now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world. And I come to thee, Holy Father. Now that's an interesting realization. I'm about to leave. They still have to stay. Yikes. No wonder the Lord then asks, Keep 
through thine own name those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one as we are. Can you imagine? We're all in this together, and we've suffered together, and we've struggled together, we've served together, and it's about to get worse. Jesus is about to have the hardest of, of, of any of us, by an infinite degree. I wouldn't want to trade places with him, but he is then going to the Father. While we are left behind to continue the suffering, to face the ongoing persecution. Oh, ah, hearts troubled? Yeah, you better believe it. Straightened till our work be accomplished? Yeah, I'm sensing that too in my own lesser way. I love that the Lord realizes that and prays to the Father. They're going to need your ongoing help. They're going to need your glory. I won't be with them. Send them the Spirit. Send them the Comforter. But send them thy power. Endow them with that. Be with them. I'm praying for them. They will need all the help they can get. There's something powerful and profound about this moment, especially the way that it ends. Because in the context of that separation and them still in the world and them, not them, us, we're still here in the world. We're disciples of Christ. We're not these apostles, but we're Christ's followers still stuck in the world with all its suffering, all of its sin, all of its persecution, all of its opposition. Can you picture the Lord praying for all of us? And how does he end the prayer? What's going to help us get through all of this? Each other. That they may be one as we are. That's how we endure the wicked world. We can't come out, come out of it to go be with the Father. Not literally anyway. But we can come out of it to be with each other. And what do we call that? Zion. One heart, one mind, dwelling together in righteousness, no poor among us, fully caring for each other, being one in each other, the way the Father and the Son are one. We'll talk more about that in just a moment. But you see what the Lord is asking for? Zion is the ultimate answer to the world, to Babylon. It's the, it's the opposite. Babylon, a place of selfishness. Zion, a place of selflessness. Babylon, a place of division, contention. Zion, a place of unity and love. We have to build it that way. Now, there's going to be more on oneness in a moment, but the Lord is still praying for these apostles, and by extension to all of us disciples, and says in verse 12, while I was with them in the world, I kept them in thy name. I had them. My arms of safety were around them. The, the hen's wings were extended. But I'm not going to be here anymore. So notice what he says. Those that thou gavest me I have kept, and none of them is lost but the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Now, that son of perdition, ooh, that's, that's halting and haunting. We're going to talk more about Judas in next week's lesson, including... Whether or not the phrase son of perdition applies to him. So hold on, hold on to this thought until next week, okay? And for now, hold, hold tighter to the first part of that statement. I kept them in thy name, and I've kept them all. Yes, Judas choose, chose to, to wiggle out of my, 
of my grip. But for the rest of them, none of them is lost. There's something powerful about Christ's ability to keep us if we'll just keep him. He's a, a vine that can hold the graft and keep the branch there if we'll just submit and open ourselves for his living water to flow in. None of them is lost. We need to hold out greater hope for ones we think are lost in the meantime. Unless they're sons of perdition. And I, <laughs> how many have, ri- have risen high enough to fall that low? then there's still hope. Hope in a Christ who keeps people. Honors their agency, but works with them and on them and through them in hopes that they'll stay and choose to abide eternally. Oh, I imagine there's, it's far bigger than just these 11 apostles he's referring to with his ultimate aim to make sure that none of God's children is lost, including your children, when they feel lost. In verse 13, he then says, Now come I to thee. So I'm leaving them, I'm coming to you. And these things I speak in the world. I'm going to leave that behind me. Okay, things that the Spirit can then bring to people's remembrance. I will speak in the world. Why? that they might have my joy fulfilled in themselves. The New International Version phrases it a little differently. That they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I want joy to the infinite degree, the kind I'm about to feel. I want them to be able to feel too. So, what am I doing? I'm leaving my words in the world. That's the way we can access the Savior's joy. Pretty good motivation for scripture study, you think? His words are what he's left us in the world. He then says, I have given them my word, and the world hath hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. He's been, he's been pushing back against this, the world, this whole discourse. And here's where it really reaches a climax, not of the world. But then notice what he says. This is a fascinating phrase. I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world but that thou shouldest keep them from the evil. Isn't that amazing? He's, he's being really clear here with the Father, trying to be really specific what, about what he's praying for, but also what he's not praying for. Christ, who came into the world to save the world, not to condemn it, right? John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. He sent his Son to save the world, not to condemn the world. But he's, now the son is leaving the world and leaving the world behind and leaving disciples behind within it. Huh. Now, if you were really that worried about the world, wouldn't you want to save your disciples from it? I mean, if you're on the way, take, take, take us with you. That's what I'd be feeling. Please don't leave us behind. No wonder my heart is troubled. But do you see how specific the Lord is? I am not. Father, please understand. When I am wrestling with the world and trying to overcome it, recognizing its evils, I am not trying to take these people out of the world. Not yet, anyway. Or not in the way they might hope. 
Remember, I'm working from the inside out, not the outside in. So I'm not, I'm not that kind of Messiah. Rome will still be all around you. The world will be too much with you. And it needs to be that way. Not just so that the world can test you and, and prove you, but in a more redeeming way. So you can have a greater effect upon the world. That's why I'm not gathering out wheat prematurely. There's still some tares out there that can change. I, yes, I am worried that the world will change you. But I'm hopeful that you will change the world. So please be in it. We often wrestle with that, or we love the phrase, in the world but not of the world. But we almost skip over the first half so we can get to the second, not of the world. And that's, I mean, you can see bumper stickers and, and window decals with that N-O-T-W, not of the world. To me, it's beautiful. But are we so focused on that second half of avoiding worldliness that we miss out on the first half and then just, just avoid the world? No, the Lord is crystal clear here. Keep them here. Keep them in the world. It's almost like he wants these embedded agents, <laughs> counterinsurgents. He needs troops behind enemy lines. He needs leaven to remain behind in hopes of leavening the lump. And so please keep them there. Keep. I'm going to take some doctors out of the medical field to turn them into apostles, but I need a lot of doctors to stay in the medical world. Not just to heal people spiritually, but to make, or not just to heal people physically, but to make a difference spiritually. I do need one Supreme Court justice to, be, to become an apostle instead. But the rest of you lawyers and judges out there, please judge righteous judgment. The world will need that. Educators, like President Irene, well, I hope that academia can use one less of them because I need him to help build the kingdom. But the rest of you educators, you can build my kingdom too. And in fact, you could probably do it more within the halls of academia than outside of them. So please stay there and make a difference. It's interesting, I was, I was speaking at some firesides in California uh, not too long ago and talking to some wonderful saints that were living in the Bay Area. And I, I've seen online like infographics of this mass exodus from California. And as a Californian by birth and by, by raising myself, that, that pains me. My sister always jokes, it says, you know, grandma and grandpa had the courage to leave Utah to go and establish themselves in California. And now all these California grandkids are moving back to Utah. What's, what's wrong? Uh, Utah's great. California's great, great too. And what's interesting, though, as people are flooding out of the Golden State to seek greener pastures elsewhere, when I, as I spoke to these saints, they said a lot of church leaders, apostles, 70s, general authorities have come and said, please stay. Please stay I know this advice can't be across the board, 
for you individually, the spirit may, that spirit of truth that guides you to all truth may guide you to pick up and move literally because it's too, too, the place has become too dangerous spiritually for you to raise your, you to raise your children. I get that. So, so does God, so do the prophets. But if at all possible, and if the spirit so moves you, stay. I felt that among amazing Puerto Rican converts on my mission that just thought, ah, my next step, I've joined the church, now I want to move to Utah. And I was like, no, 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 there's plenty of members in Utah. We need more members in Puerto Rico. Stay and build the kingdom. It's, some, have, some people, uh, it's actually interesting at BYU. There have been some outsiders that say BYU is not sufficiently diverse. And you need to create scholarships, for example, and bring the best the students with the highest potential from all around the world, bring them to Provo, educate the world that way, which is an awesome idea. Except, as studies have shown, so many of them that end up coming end up staying, and there are local leaders in countries across the world that are worried about this drain. As people leave their communities, travel to the United States, become educated there, but then keep all their gifts and talents in the United States rather than bring those gifts back home with them to make a difference. So BYU is trying to figure out how do we do that? How do we offer the best education we can to people all over the world so we can bless the whole world instead of just bring everyone to the United States and, and keep them here? You understand the, the dilemma, the challenge there? Do you understand the, why, the, why apostles would tell Californian saints, please stay, if at all possible, and make a difference here? Do you see why the Lord is saying to the apostles, I want you to be with me, but not yet. I go to prepare a place for you. In the meantime, will you stay and prepare a place for me? This earth will become the celestial kingdom, but the earth has to be weaned off the world to get there. So please stay. Every church has to decide where to go along this spectrum of in the world and not of the world. And every step into the world is a step in the right direction if it means greater influence that you can have on the world. It's a step in the wrong direction if it means greater influence that the world has on you. Do you understand the danger? It's a gamble. And every church kind of has to decide. There are some, for example, mainline Protestantism, for the most part, has decided we're going to be in the world as far as we can. And seats of power and, and places of influence. And that's an awesome goal. The challenge, though, comes in its risk. That the further into the world we get, the more the world gets into us. And maybe at some point, instead of me making a difference in the world, I'm no longer different enough from the world to make a difference in the world. Make sense? So others are so concerned about that risk that they stay on the opposite extreme. And groups like the Amish, for example, decide, I don't want to be of the world at all, so I'm barely going to be in it. Now, I'm not trying to second-guess the decisions of either extreme. But I am saying that we need to be wise and inspired, not just institutionally as the church, but individually, one-on-one. -on -one. How far into the world can I go safely? 
Because if I can take one more step and hold on to my convictions, if I can be kept from the evil of the world, like Jesus himself is praying for, he knows what we're up against. And he himself is praying for our behalf. Please keep them from worldly influences. But please bless them to be an influence upon the world. And if I get more education, if I put myself into politics and business and education and entertainment and whatever area it is, please know the risk. But also please know the responsibility that we have to shine as lights in the world. This is going to be personal and individual on all of your parts. But ponder that prayer. And which, which direction do I need to step? Have I been too much in the world to become of it and I need to step out? Or have I been trying to... Have I been seeking safety and staying on home base and haven't been willing to risk persecution and opposition but influence that I could have. Take it personally. Deal with it individually. But please place yourself somewhere within that part of the prayer and act according to the Lord's direction. Verse 16, the Lord then continues on this same topic. They are not of the world. <laughs> That's a good thing. Even as I am not of the world. Now, of course, our... Otherworldliness is a far cry from the Lord's, but hopefully we're moving in the right direction. Uh, the Lord is hoping for that, and therefore he prays for it. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. So there it is again. Amazing how many times he's talked about his word. It's God's word that has that protective, sanctifying effect. It's the word that bring, taps me into his glory. It's the word that helps me feel close to him. It's his word that helps me navigate the world. Right? Whosoever treasureth up my word shall not be deceived. This is how we do it. We hold on to that iron rod. It gets us through the mists of darkness. It helps us avoid the great and spacious building. It brings us to the tree of life. It's his word. He then goes on, As thou hast sent me into the world, even so have I also sent them into the world. This is the commando raid. This is across enemy lines. The Father sent the Son into the world. Word made flesh. Well, now the Son is sending these servants into the world as well. And so he prays. For their sakes, I sanctify myself, that they also might be sanctified through the truth. That's a profound passage too. For their sakes, I sanctify myself, so they can be sanctified through the truth. The iron rod, like I said, is what gets us back. But if the iron rod is the word of God and Christ is the word of God, then back to Lehi's dream, he's not only the tree of life, he's not only its fruit, he's the, the rod too. It's his word that extends out into that wicked world. He's going on this commando mission and he's sanctifying himself. He's remaining solid iron. He will not be bent by the world's pressures. He wants to extend himself so we have something to hold on to. He wants to keep himself sanctified, holy. So there's a way for us to lay hold of holiness ourselves. If his sanctification was for our sakes, 
then isn't the least we can do to return the favor? To strive to be sanctified in him for his sake? It's what makes his suffering worth something. It's a reassurance that he didn't do it in vain. Now, it's not just these 11, as I said before. It's all of us. And so the Lord says in verse 20, Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word. So now this prayer extends out to every Christian believer throughout time, which includes us. So no wonder we're allowed to eavesdrop on the prayer. It's meant for our behalf. What will fill our hearts as we hear him pray for us unto the Father? Well, listen to what he asks for. That they all may be one. As thou, Father, art in me and I in thee, that they also may be one in us. That the world may believe that thou hast sent me. This part of his prayer is one of the most incredible to me. He's praying for oneness, right? As he's about to make an at-one-ment possible. Oh, faith without works is dead. Here he's expressing his faith. He's about to do the work, and it's an atoning work. But what is he hoping for? That we've got to figure out how to become one with each other. Just like the Father and the Son are one. Now, this is a place where you can really start to wrestle with the Godhead and the Trinity and the doctrine of the Trinity and what it all means. Because in this part of the prayer, he doesn't just say, please bless them to be one. He says that, but he's more specific. He says, bless them to be one as thou, Father, art in me and I in one. So they can be one in us. That's... That's the kind of unity that Jesus has in mind when he talks about oneness. Now, when it comes to the doctrine of the Trinity, and I call it the doctrine of the Trinity rather than the Trinity, because I'm trying to be specific here. When I was in divinity school, I had a Catholic ask me, do you Latter-day Saints believe in the Trinity? And I said, well, we believe in the members of the Trinity, but not the doctrine of the Trinity. And she was confused. She's like, wait, what? What's the difference? I'm like, there is a difference, and I have to be crystal clear. If I just say, oh yeah, we Latter-day Saints, we don't believe in the Trinity then I'm afraid that you'll walk away going, oh, so Latter-day Saints don't believe in the Father or the Son or the Holy Ghost? Wow, okay, I guess they're not Christians after all. I'm like, no, 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 read the first article of faith. The first one, <laughs> we believe in God the Eternal Father and in His Son, Jesus Christ, and in the Holy Ghost. We just have commas to separate those three <laughs> in that article, okay? We believe in the members of the Trinity. We just call it the Godhead to clarify we just, but we don't believe in the doctrine of the Trinity, which states that those three are one in substance, one in being, one ontologically, instead of just one in terms of attributes and desires and, and I mean, the ultimate team, okay? What I love about, and we've talked about this before, uh, if you've have, ever had conversations with others, don't make it a Bible bash by any means, but there is so much good evidence in the, in the New Testament included that shows the separation of Father, Son, and Spirit. We have the baptism, right? The voice of God, this is my Son, who's there in the water. And then the Spirit descends like a dove. We saw the 
the, the law of witnesses being invoked by Jesus on two separate occasions saying, I'm not the only one that bears witness of myself. My father does too. And if there's two witnesses being invited to the witness stand, they can't be the same substance. They can't be the same being. And so there's this distinction through the law of witnesses. Well, John 17 is one of my favorite places to, to wrestle with this and to discuss interpretations with those of other faiths. Because here the Lord is saying, I want them to be one. And then using his own oneness with the Father as an analogy. I want them to be one in us and with each other the way we are one in each other and with each other. Now, wait a minute. If we're talking an ontological oneness, a oneness of substance, then what is he praying for? What is he asking his apostles to become? Somehow all of them, and not even just the 11, but all the other disciples who believe on their words, what, what we're supposed to like fuse and merge into some kind of mega apostle? That's impossible. And it, in, more than impossible, since I guess with God anything's possible, it's, it's not what the Lord would want. He wants us to divide so we can conquer. <laughs> But he wants us to be one even in our division. He wants it to be, oh, here's a contrary. He wants there to be diversity in unity. He wants us to be individual, but to be truly one with each other in spite of our individuality. Maybe because of our individuality. You have gifts I don't have, so we need to be one with each other. So. I can you scratch your back and you, scratch, you can scratch mine. I can bless you and you can bless me. And together we can bless everyone. That's why the gifts of the Spirit are distributed in that way. But to understand then, well, what kind of oneness are you talking about for us? Well, perfect oneness in attributes, in aims, in approaches, in, in desires. In, it's Zion. It's one heart, one mind. Even though you're all different disciples, coming to Zion together. That's the kind of oneness that is shared by the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. And that's the kind of oneness they want us to share as well. Are we getting there? Because if we're not, then we're doing the world a disservice. We're, make, we're, we're telling them that real oneness is not achievable. You see how that verse ended, this part of the prayer? The Lord is praying for oneness. He's praying for unity among his followers. But the way he ends it, that they may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. There's a lot writing on this. How is the world going to believe that the Father sent the Son? Well, it will be the Son's ability to make true disciples out of each of us to the point that we can become truly one in him and one with, the, with each other. If we can't figure out how to be one, then what kind of a lesson are we teaching the world? It's actually a huge concern of mine when, I, when we're talking interfaith dialogue, where if we're fighting each other, then what is that? Fellow Christians fighting each other. What are we saying to the rest of the world? Let's get even more personal. Fellow Latter-day Saints at odds with one another. Then what kind of example are we setting for the rest of the Christian world around us and the rest of the human family around them? No, there is something about 
the proof being in the pudding. There's something about the, the lesson we're trying to teach, well, the lesson that God is trying to teach the world. And it's a lesson on oneness in each other. It's a lesson on the second great commandment put in service to the first great commandment, the one that's first and foremost above all. If we ever hope to connect to God and ever hope to connect the world to God, we're going to have to prove that we can connect with each other and become truly one. Otherwise, we are admitting to a skeptical world, yeah, it really can't be done. You can't pull off the second great commandment. You can't pull off the first. We're, we're faking it. No, we can't fake it. We may still be falling short, but we can't be faking it. That has to be our goal. Incredible oneness along the lines of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. Do we know each other well enough to do that? Are we open enough with one another to do that? Are we vulnerable? Are we real? Do we love one another as Jesus loved us? Because without that, without that, the world will justifiably doubt our message. Because we haven't been able to pull off any oneness ourselves. You get this? This is serious stuff. No wonder it takes the Lord himself to pray for it. And then to pay for it. Through his own atoning sacrifice. All of this is meant to at one us. With God and with each other. Now, there's going to be a story I'd love to share about that in just a moment. I'll end with that. But in the meantime, can we finish the Lord's Prayer? In verse 22, he says, The glory which thou gavest me, I have given them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one. And then this repetition, that the world may know that thou hast sent me, and hast loved them as thou hast loved me. So again, Zion has to be analogous to the Godhead. As I've talked with Trinitarians, I've sometimes suggested, and this is a Christian term, not a Latter-day Saint one, but some Christians out there are even wondering about this ontological oneness, and how does that work, and is it, is it philosophically plausible? Uh, they come up with a phrase they call social Trinitarianism. And that's the closest Christian term I've seen to our belief in the Godhead. A social Trinitarianism is a degree of distinction between the members of the Godhead, members of the Trinity, but they're socially united. Okay, that makes more sense. Uh, a social Trinitarianism in the Godhead, a social unity in Zion, that's what we're after. Sociality on this life that can then be coupled with glory in the next. Okay, are we becoming one along these lines? But what I love about this next passage is it helps us understand more of what this unity, what this oneness entails by connecting it to glory. Did you catch that in verse 22 and 23? The glory you gave me is what I'm giving to them. And somehow that glory helps us become one. The f we talked about, pay attention to the word glory in all of this sermon after supper. And the Lord has brought it up repeatedly. And things about the Father glorifying the Son and the Son glorifying the Father. And give me the glory that I had before so I can glorify you with it. Extend that glory to others. There's something about glory that connects. And it's the kind of connective tissue between the Father and the Son and the Spirit. The kind of connective tissue between the disciples of Christ 
and Christ himself, between us, within, through us, there's something about this glory. And so when he says that they may be perfect in one, do you remember the phrase, I mean, Jesus says this at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, or at the end of Matthew 5, I should say, be therefore perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. To the Nephites, he includes himself, finally, post-resurrection. Be therefore perfect, even as your father and I are perfect. And then, fast forward to the end of the Book of Mormon, Moroni 10, he talks about being perfected in Christ. Remember that? The kindest, most generous past participle in all the grammar of God. It's perfected in Christ. It's perfection through Christ. And what taps us into that perfection is connecting through his glory. Now, ponder glory for a moment. The glory of God, according to the Doctrine and Covenants, is intelligence. Or, in other words, light and truth. So if we're trying to define glory so that we can better wrap our heads around this connective tissue and, and the source whereby we become one with each other and one with God, there's something about light and truth that constitutes the glory of God. And so if I will live into the Lord's light and shine, eliminate all darkness from myself, light seems to fuse into itself pretty well. Light is a good fit for light. In fact, DNC 88, light cleaveth unto light. Cleaving, how's that becoming one? Light and truth, which truth shineth. Section 88 says, the spirit of truth that guides you into all truth, the spirit that pulls you out of whatever worldly circumstance you're in and brings you into full communion. So a oneness of light, a oneness of truth, that's the glory of God. That's intelligence. In fact, we were intelligence before we became spirit. It, we are made of light and truth. It's what we really are at our essence. We were made to become one with another. What else is glory? Remember this phrase, this is my work and my glory to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of man. I don't know about you, but the times I have felt most at one with other people is when we together are most engaged in God's work and glory. Mission companions that I just felt like were kindred spirits, and eternal friends because of the work we were engaged in together. It's beautiful. Presidencies and bishoprics I've served in, just faculty members and partners in the work of the Lord. There's oneness when you decide together we're going to help God bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of his children. No wonder the Lord is sending us into the world and praying that we keep from the evil of the world. But we need each other. And it's almost like hands holding in like this chain connected through glory, through his work, through his life, through his work, through his, through his truth and his light, but extending out into darkness. But hold on. It's almost like we form the iron rod grip by grip, extending out into the wicked world to try to reach people that are still wandering in the midst of darkness. Come in, come home. Come be with us. Grab a hold and participate in God's glory by extending that light and truth to others who have not yet found it. That's Zion. 
bringing people out of Babylon. That is one heart and one mind. That is iron rods reaching out in all directions, just bringing people back to the love of God that lies at its source. I'm blown away by this prayer. It's so incredible. It's, it's so much bigger than, I don't know, Trinitarianism. And every, all the divinity just kind of folding back into itself. And then humanity dying and just kind of being subsumed back into the essence of God. Where's the individuality in that? Where's the existence in that? If we all just kind of refuse, you know, fuse back into the divine... I, you know, again, I don't want to belabor the point on Trinitarianism. Uh, and some of the best Christians in the world happen to believe in the Trinity. Uh, though they don't tend not to understand it. It's a mystery, as they themselves admit. The challenge is, honestly, and this is the last thing I'll say on Trinity, and then we'll, we'll move forward in true unity. The problem really started with Plato, in some ways. And when New Testament Christianity passed through Greek philosophy. It came out different on the other side. As far this is a horrible oversimplification, but for our sakes, I'll just try to be simple. That Plato believed in these forms, these ideal forms that all we see in life are just shadows of the real object that exists in its ideal form in some other sphere. It's the object behind us, and it's just casting shadows on the cave in front of us. If there's anything ideal, then it would be the greatest of its form, uh, the greatest of its kind. Uh, if you see an elephant in the earth, there's some ideal elephant that exists elsewhere. If you see humanity, it's a sorry, kind of fuzzy reflection, just a shadow on the cave wall of the divinity that lies behind it. And so if there is some kind of perfection, it's invisible and unapproachable to us. It lies somewhere behind our consciousness, but it's perfect, and that's God. Now, since it's an ideal, it has to be individual in its idealness. Uh, there can't be diversity. It has to be unity. It has to be, it, it's called monism, mon, mono, only one. And since the Greeks were so focused on just having one ideal perfection, then when you take Christianity with its view of a father and a, an only begotten son and a spirit, well, take those three and force them through Greek philosophy. And what do you get on the other side? You get the doctrine of the Trinity. You get if the three have to be one somehow. And I don't completely understand, but it's three and one and one and three, and they're the same substance, uh, just different manifestations of it. They're still trying to wrestle with the diversity they see in Scripture, but Greek philosophy has forced them to end up with only one when all is said and done. To me, I find it ironic when Trinitarians accuse Latter-day Saints of polytheism, which is just a scare tactic rhetorically. Because oh, polytheism immediately makes you think of like the Greek pantheon and the Roman pantheon and the Egyptian pantheon and all these gods for different days of the week and different substances and different purposes. No, that, that's not. If that's polytheism, then no. Latter-day Saints in no way are polytheistic. 
Oh, but you believe in a separation of the Father and the Son. You believe that you can become like God. And that's not polytheism the way you're using the term. And I always chuckle because in early Christianity, the Jews made fun of Christians and called them polytheists because they believed in a Father and a Son and the Holy Ghost. And that's not the radical monotheism of the Old Testament, where it's Jehovah and Jehovah alone. And yet even that, it's like, well, Elohim, Jehovah, is there a son of man? How does it? It's confusing all across the board. But to understand the source that we're studying here, Christ, who sees his Father as a separate being and prays to him, that he might hold on to his oneness with the Father and not just hold on to it, extend it to others so that we can be one with them and one with each other as well. So much, the grand finale, the crescendo of all this farewell discourse, this sermon after supper leading up to Gethsemane is oneness through the glory of God. His truth, his light, his work. And then that crescendo is crowned by the act of the atonement itself. Christ suffering in Gethsemane and being crucified on Calvary. And then rising in glory on that first Easter morn. Do you understand what... I hope I'm doing justice to this. I, I, I can't. But I'm trying. And my prayer, along with Christ's, or alongside Christ's prayer, is that we understand the kind of oneness that exists through the Lord's glory. If we're ever going to be perfect in one, as the Lord says in this verse, it's going to come because we're in Christ, participating in his perfection, accepting his grace, acknowledging that grace in others, realizing that he is making them at one with him, just like he's making us at one with him. And if that's the process and we all become at one in him, then that's where we become at one with one another. Sound like Zion to me. Verse 24 then, as this prayer is reaching its close, the Lord says, Father, I will that they also, whom thou hast given me, be with me where I am. I mean, not yet, <laughs> not yet, right? Keep them in the world. But ultimately, when they've learned how to be one, when they've learned how to overcome the world and change the world in the process, then please let them be with me where I am. And then this interesting phrase, that they may behold my glory, which thou hast given me, for thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. <laughs> There's something there about, wait a minute, I, I thought we've seen thy glory. Didn't the apostles see Jesus' glory all along? Well, no, this was a glory in an earthen vessel. This is word made flesh and the flesh dwelling among us. Well, yeah, but what about transfiguration? Surely then Peter, James, and John got to see. And in some ways the Lord is like, well, the word made flesh was the first hint. The transfiguration made it a little more obvious. But to be honest, you ain't seen nothing yet. So, Father, is there any way when all is said and done, they come home and and can see me for who I really am and who I've always been. To know as they are known, 
can they please behold my glory? To me, there's something beautifully personal about this part of the prayer. where It's as if the Lord himself just wants to be known. He just wants us to, to see him and recognize him and, and love him enough to obey him. To see glory, light and truth and work and all that he's doing to try to save us. And to recognize that enough to want to tap into it, want to connect to it and abide in it and continue in his love and bring people into it also. Until everyone comes home and the son can fully say to the father, the work is done. All that thou hast given me. I haven't lost a single one. He closes in verse 25 and 26. And it's hard to say amen at the end of this prayer because I just don't want it to end. In some ways it hasn't. He's still acting on this prayer, adding works to his faith. But here in verse 25 he says, Oh, righteous Father. You sense the intimate connection between Son and Father here. O righteous Father, the world hath not known thee, but I have known thee. And these have known, I'll fill in the blank, these have known thee, uh, nope, not quite, but they're working on it. These have known that thou hast sent me, which might be the closest we can come in this life to truly knowing the Father. At least we know the Son, It's like Jesus had said to Thomas and Philip before. Well, they know that much at least. They know where I'm from and whose I am. So what's his final petition? I have declared unto them thy name and will declare it that the love wherewith thou hast loved me may be in them and I in them. You see that final declaration. What he's about to do before he fully says it is finished. Atonement, crucifixion, resurrection. That's the final declaration. I have declared it in thy name. I will declare it. Why? That the love that you've loved me can then extend down into them. That's, that's the living water. That's the fruit of the tree of life. It's the love of God. When a branch is grafted into the true vine, what flows into it to extend life? It's love. As we're grasping arm in arm and extending the iron rod out into the mist of darkness, it's love that people are laying hold of. I told you that this discourse revolved around the world and our need to overcome it the Father, Son, and Spirit, and their teamwork, their incredible oneness. I told you it would focus on the Holy Ghost himself and what his role would be. But I also told you that the, the key foundational, this is the keystone of the whole arch of this farewell discourse, is love. For God so loved the world. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another as I have loved you. The Father loves us enough to send the Son. The Son loves us enough to sacrifice himself. 
Do we love them enough to obey? Do we love each other enough to become one? That's the only way the world will know that the Father sent the Son and that the Son called us. Love will be the great converting factor for the world. It will be the great reactivating factor for anyone who has fallen away. Love is the only hope that we have, and it's the infinite love of God as embodied in Jesus. I told you before I wanted to tell you one last story. Well, here it is. It was first told, first place I heard it, was from Devin Durant when he was a, oh, a young man. He'd been home from his mission just a couple of years. This is back in the day when General Conference priesthood session sometimes invited some outsiders in. It was kind of cool. Uh, and like Lavelle Edwards spoke and, and like famous athletes. And, and I think Peter Vidmar spoke after he got the gold medal in the Olympics. And, and Devin Durant, who was an All-American basketball player at BYU, had, I think it was that year, he got drafted by the Indiana Pacers in the NBA. And he was invited to speak in general conference. Hmm, how's that? Uh, he'd been home from his mission in Spain just a couple of years, and he talked to young men about serving missions and making that choice. But he told a story that he had heard on his mission, and it, it really moved me as a, as a kid myself. And it had to do with, with love as a converting principle. Just like the Lord is saying at the end of this prayer, it's your oneness that will tell the world, that will convert the world, and it's a oneness that is forged in love. Well, the story was told of two missionaries, a senior and a junior companion, and the senior missionary was incredibly well-skilled. But unfortunately, he knew that. <laughs> the, the junior companion was unskilled, but fortunately, he knew that, and it kept him humble. Well, they were teaching a family uh, that had been progressing, but ultimately the father of the family said, please don't come back. Here's your Book of Mormon. I, I don't want to continue the lessons. And if you've ever had that experience as a missionary, it's devastating. And it was devastating to this set of elders. Now, the senior companion thought, no, 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 no. I just need one more chance. You, you, can't, get, you can't get off that easy. If I'll just, if you'll give me one more opportunity, I know, mm, I know I can do this. I've got the language. I've got the, 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 I know the gospel. I can prove things in the scriptures. I can do this if he'll just give me one last chance. And so he reached out to the father of the family and just begged, can we, we'll honor your, your decision, but will you just let us come speak to you one last time? Please, please. And the father relented and said, fine. Well, this, the, the junior companion was at a at a loss because he thought, I don't know any of those things. I can't, I will be totally worthless. And the senior companion said, that's okay. Just sit there and, I don't know, pray for me. Okay, I can do that. Well, this family let the missionaries in and sure enough, the senior companion unloaded everything he had. All of his wisdom and his scripture knowledge and, and all of his experience as a, as a well-trained missionary. After the discussion, this father said, you know, let's continue the discussions and see where this leads. And ultimately led to the family's baptism. Can you imagine how the senior missionary felt? Patting himself on the back? Well, at the baptism, when it was over, the father turned to this senior companion and said, you know, the day you came back 
for one last visit was the day that changed my life and my family's life. And as the, the glory was going to the head of this senior companion, the father explained himself. And it ended up popping the bubble of this companion. Because the father said, oh, I knew when you guys came, you'd unload everything you had on me. And I kept telling myself, do not let them convince you to keep listening. So, yeah, you kept blabbing and blabbing. I don't remember anything you said because I was just so focused on ignoring you. And I was succeeding at that until I made one fatal mistake. I turned and looked at your companion who was just sitting there looking at me. But when I looked in his eyes and he was looking into mine, I saw more love in that young missionary's eyes than I'd ever seen in anyone's. It, it, sh it shook me. It shocked me. It, it changed me. Because I thought to myself, if there's a church on the earth that can teach a young man to love like that, then I want to be a part of it. It opened my heart to the Holy Ghost. That spirit continued to soften me until I gained a testimony of the truths you were teaching, and here I am. How do you think the senior missionary felt then? Or the junior? Or any of us? It's not going to be our worldly wisdom that convinces a wicked world that we're right and they were wrong all along. No, it will be the love of God. Manifest in its perfect form in Jesus and in so many imperfect forms by each of us. But I pray that we can grow up in God in our love. That we can grow up in God in our unity through love. Can we even imagine the kind of effect on the world that we would have if we were filled with divine love. If we loved God enough to obey his every commandment, if we loved the world enough to share with them the love of God. I'll admit, feeling God's love for me is one of the greatest experiences we could possibly have. But feeling his love flow through me is what connects me to people that he loves more than I could possibly love on my own. I know God loves you because I feel his love for you every time I get to teach you in his name. That's Zion. That's oneness. If we can become of one heart and one mind, one glory, one love, then we'll convert the world to the love of God. It's that love that will draw the world to him. It's that love that drew us to him to begin with. It's what helps us come to know the Father and the Son, which is life eternal. And what will we come to know them as once we get there? We will know light. We will know truth. We will know glory. We will know God. Because we will know that God is love.